Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and with me, as always, is Cameron. Don't mind me. Just urinating. <laughs> just a good old protagonist in a Stephen King book circa 1996. Mm -hmm. Urinating. Uh-huh. Nothing bad gonna happen to me, the guy yep. who urinates. Yep, yep. Uh, and meanwhile, I also have to urinate, so I'm going to, like, leave the scene for a little bit. Uh, hopefully nothing bad happens to me or to everyone else that I've left behind while I've gone off to urinate. Nothing, nothing bad ever happens to anyone urinating. <laughs> That's the white. Yeah. <laughs> the yellow. Uh... Yeah, it feels like, you know, I flagged the the P thing, what, was it just an episode ago? Was it two episodes it, ago? It was like a couple episodes back, I think. Did it start yeah. in Rose Matter? I can't remember. Now. Yes, Rose Matter, maybe, was when I was like, hey, this has been happening, and it's continued to happen. <laughs> yeah, someone, I can't remember where they, uh, apologies to, to you, listener, because uh, I don't remember who said it or when, <laughs> or on what platform. So, you know, you know we're, buckle in for a good one. Uh, but, uh, someone said that they gave me, they like, sent me a list of the books and they were like, my friends and I have referred to this as Stephen King's P books. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, a, a propos of the, the previous books that we have talked about. And it's right. I don't know what's, I think, you know, I think I, I mentioned it last time. My speculation is that Stephen King is in his forties. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not my speculation. That's a fact <laughs> that did historically occur. In the 90s, he was, in fact, in his 40s. Uh, and that he's really thinking about it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. He's really he's really yeah. considering, you know, uh, we used to consider the ant. Mm -hmm. Right. You, you know, mm -hmm. now we consider urinating. Yeah, I think it's partly that. I think you're about, uh, I think you're right. And I think there's another angle here that I was thinking about, especially this one, uh, which is, I would not be surprised if, in addition to whatever was going on in his life that made Steve think more about uh, peeing and whatnot, is that he also stumbled upon this kind of uh, way of looking at writing where he's like, you know what, other people, those so-called realists who write serious <laughs> fiction, tend to overlook right how often people have to go to the bathroom and so he's like kind of like you know trying to low-key maybe sort of add verisimilitude to his world by having characters have to pee constantly uh, it, it does yeah it does feel that way <laughs> and then it does end up being this like weirdly convenient uh like plot pretext for things to happen because it's just like yeah it's uh it's a way for a character to be kind of off guard uh it's an excuse for a character to leave a situation if you want them to or to not be present for something it's just once you acknowledge in your fiction that people have to pee uh the sky's the limit essentially that's what uh john updike never did 
you know that's why that's why uh you know the titan of american fiction was never able to really wrangle with the realities and truths of being um well i've talked about this previously and i'm sure we'll talk about it if we can ever return to uh film bonusodes uh because the amptp still needs to come to the table with a proper agreement mm-hmm. i don't know if you're are you up on what the amptp's newest dealio is uh no i have not seen that i saw people talking about it they're like hey y'all we're not gonna give you any residuals on uh on views you know streams but we will allow for a multi-year data analysis by six members of the guilds i think it's the wga that they're trying to to negotiate with on this one it's it's silly producers make a deal Mm -hmm. (laughs) anyway Anyway, uh, so if one day maybe we'll return to movie bonusodes, the point being is that they uh, in Dreamcatcher, I've talked about this before. Stephen King says that the final frontier of representation on film is the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, previously, the final frontier in literature had been the bathroom and he had resolved that in the 1990s. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the other thing. It's like, <laughs> it's hard not to be poisoned by knowledge and feel like the gravitational pool of what happens in Dreamcatcher uh, here in, in the P era. The, uh, yeah, um, uh, Roland eventually resolves the Dark Tower conflict by taking a big ol' whiz. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's about 10 minutes of pee talk. Yep. Uh, we're going to try to balloon that out for the next episode, of course, but... Mm-hmm. Michael, we're talking about desperation. Desperation to urinate. Wow. That's true. For one, it, for Johnny Marinville, the worst character ever in a book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Desperation, 1996. Um, the, the second, this is difficult because they came out on the same day, right? Uh, right. This book and the next book, The Regulators, written under King's uh, Richard Bachman pseudonym, uh, came out on the same day in September of 1996, and this was just after uh, The Green Mile had finished up. So, uh, you know, depending on how you ordinate these things, it's either his second or his third novel of 1996. Uh, And there was a big marketing push behind this. Uh, I was reading about it. There were, it was $2 million was the budget. Um, for for marketing? Yes. That's big for a book, it seems it, to me. It is big, and uh, they kind of, they went for it. And weirdly enough, I remember this. This is the other I, thing. I also remember yeah. this, too, yeah. Yeah, we, we mentioned this, I think, uh, uh, previously with regard to the Green Mile, but we're also entering kind of the, the era of uh, the king that I know. Right. Like my sort of like actual first hand memories of like the Stephen King uh, uh, franchise or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember seeing these in like Walmart and in bookstores. There were so first of all, there were three ways to buy desperation in the regulators. Uh, and they're not just uh, being marketed together for shits and giggles, but we'll have to save most of what we can talk about for next month when we actually talk about the regulators, because these books are uh, related to one another, but in really weird and oblique ways. Um, uh, so they were sold, uh, they, they were released on the same day, one by King, one by Bachman. Um, King was adamant that the Bachman one would not say Stephen King as Richard Bachman on it, right? He he made it very clear that it had to be Richard Bachman. So you could buy mm-hmm. one or the other, uh, or you could buy them in like a vacuum sealed like two pack, right? 
Yeah, it was a, a slip cover, mm-hmm. like a slip case uh, two pack. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, uh, cover illustrations for the for both books, like you can fit them together and they make like a panorama. Uh, mm-hmm. They like make one image, but like they look like two images, but there's like sort of some bleed in the middle. And when you put them side by side, you can see how they connect. Mm-hmm. Kind of like a Mad Magazine yeah. back cover. <laughs> yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they had special displays built for this because the, the unique kind of packaging requirements and the displays themselves were motorized. Uh, they had like a, a kind of like dealie on the top that spun around, uh, and it either said like, you know, the title, like desperation on one side and it flipped over and it said the regulators, or it said like, you know, Stephen King, Richard Bachman. I don't, I don't remember, but it was, there was some sort of like motorized, like basically propeller on the top of the display. Uh, hmm. and this is where, this is what $2 million gets you in 1996 bookstores. It's the 1990s. History is over. <laughs> Barnes and no- Noble is filled with wheelie dealios that swing around <laughs> and tell you Stephen King is Richard Bachman. Uh, so that in and of itself is is interesting. Uh, a lot of uh, contemporary writing that I've read on this, and I actually referred to it in the previous episode with the Green Mile, too, because... Um, Someone that I read there, it actually might have been the the uh, Polito review, where all three of these books kind of get reviewed at once, uh, discusses it as uh, uh, basically a kind of, uh, what's a good word that is not too like demeaning? Because Polito doesn't mean it in a demeaning way, but basically it's like, holy hell, can you believe this? Like sort of the ballsiness of it, of just like kind of going all out on... Uh, the the promotional apparatus of such like the excess of it right for Stephen mm-hmm. King who already has this reputation as an excessive writer um, a kind of maximalist writer in a lot of ways uh, to go maximal in this way too right that that there's some sense that this is this a cash grab which I mean maybe it is but also King doesn't need to do a cash grab so uh, in some ways it almost from my perspective obviously money's being made uh, but it also feels like well. I am a writer in a position where I can kind of like make weird shit happen that other writers haven't been able to do. Let's see how far I can play that. Right. Right. Uh, It's very weird. To do this for these two books, Mm -hmm. which are, you know, we'll get into it. This book is interesting, but I think ultimately bad. Mm hmm. Like, it, it, like I, I think I have a lot to say about it, right? Mm-hmm. In, in the first 80 pages are great. Like, yeah. you know, top tier, top five, probably. Um, but then, like, the back two, 400 are not. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but, they, but they are extremely odd. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot to talk about. Um, but so this, I would say, is a middling to bad book mm-hmm. uh, that probably has a good book in it. The Regulators yeah. is, as I've said many times, a terrible book. That can't that you couldn't find a worse book in if you tried, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's it's weird to me that you know that so much money is spent marketing this duology of mostly middling to bad work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think w- th- this episode and the next episode are probably going to be pretty interesting because I think you and I are actually going to have a big rift over this. Uh, not that about I just dis- our- what. About uh, about your love of this book or, or your love of the regulators? <laughs> uh, kind of about my love of both. 
I can't believe it. Uh, because, and this is this is another, like, this is, again, classic us. I don't disagree with you that this might be middling to bad. I actually probably just slightly shift the weight so that it's maybe middling to good. Uh, although there's definitely some, like... This book ends up stumbling in some pretty huge ways. Some of those ways are familiar. Uh, yeah, it stumbles. You ever see Hot Rod where he rolls down that hill <laughs> yes, for two minutes? It's yes, that. Yes. <laughs> and and I find joy in seeing that. I don't find joy in like trudging through the swamp of sorrows <laughs> trying to finish the book. Uh, uh, but I but I will say you know like yeah I, I think we agree. I I probably have. 70 pages marked you know what i mean of just like weird <laughs> shit that's in the book whenever mm-hmm. i've whenever we're reading these books and i find a thing that's weird or interesting i just fold the page down you know mm-hmm. it's like that's my method and uh you know and i do it on the bottom not the top and uh this book is easily a quarter inch thicker on the bottom because of how many <laughs> folds i made yeah yeah, so uh, it, it stumbles in ways that are familiar and also in ways that are kind of new and interesting that I think yes. are just uh, uh, worth calling out, right? I guess the the way to step back and not uh, uh, to frame this is I'm not saying desperation and regulators are like actually the secret uh, jewels of the Stephen King bibliography, um, but it's more like when we talk about our method paying off uh, – I think that between these two books, we are getting King doing something uh, uh, extremely self-conscious about the way that he fashions himself as a writer, Mm -hmm. as a public figure. Uh, What are his books about? What is he doing with himself and kind of his success? Um, Yeah. And so I, I... that's going to be a conversation that'll carry into to, to next month. So I find those kind of meta moves around what these books are doing to be extremely fascinating, even though I agree, uh, desperation, middling to bad or middling to like the middling enough to be interesting. Um, and the regulators is, I mean, there's stuff in the regulators that is just straight up irredeemable, I think. Right. Like, yes. That's, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> awful. <laughs> Yeah, what they do to the Power Rangers in that book is just unacceptable. <laughs> uh, it's like, look, I'm a little preview. It's like, you remember in the 90s when there was like, in, into the early 2000s, where there was like Barney murder fantasy, uh-huh. you know, when that was like its own thing. What if we took, uh, you know, things children like and we just massacred them? Uh-huh. Remember, you remember when Death to Smoochie was the funniest movie ever made? Oh, yeah, I remember Death to Smoochie. Right? Of, mm-hmm. of course. We all do. From that. But yeah. it's it's that impulse, right. right? It's this like boomer hatred, <laughs> right? Just un- anyway, we'll talk about it. Uh, you know, I, I bet yeah. we got two hours of me just complaining coming up next month. But we're talking about desperation here. And I agree. This book is super weird, uh, starting with the fact that it's kind of based on Stephen King's real life. Sort of. Yeah. Mark? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I, there's a couple ways that we can take that. One is that, yeah, the, the, the basic idea for this book comes straight out of a thing that actually happened to Stephen King. Um, I actually think I misstated this or it got misreported. Here's the actual truth, right? When you're doing research, you'll get different. You made it up. Yeah, I'm, when you're doing research, sometimes you make shit up because it sounds cool. Um, <laughs> Uh, no, I think I said that he got the idea for this while doing the book tour promo for Insomnia, where he did a cross-country motorcycle trip to independent bookstores. Mm-hmm. Um, and he ended up in a town in Nevada, where uh, a very small town, and it just so happened he got there at the right time, and like no one was on the streets, and it seemed like none of the shops were open, and so it felt like the small town was entirely empty. 
Uh, and he was like, oh, my God, every, you know, in his, you know, uh, stream of consciousness thought everyone in the town is dead. And then he immediately mm-hmm. started thinking, well, how who who in this town could have killed everyone else? Oh, obviously, it was the sheriff. Um, OK. All right, so, Steve. Uh, so that's like, <laughs> you know, the, the germ of this plot is like yeah. small town, middle of nowhere. Uh, but I don't think so. I read another thing uh, in preparation for this that said that that was actually not what happened. His first trip, the first like what what he did is he went back to that town as part of his book tour on the motorcycle trip. He actually first had that experience while driving a a car for his daughter, Naomi, who I believe was uh, in school on the West Coast. Mm. Um, So this is a this is a thing that shows up in the novel as well, Uh, that he was driving a car for her and hit that town and had that thought. So uh, and then it made enough of an impression on him that he then came back later on the motorcycle tour. And it seems pretty clear that he was probably workshopping in his head already the ideas that were going to become this book. And that's one of the reasons he returned. Huh. Um, so uh, there's that right. The actual motorcycle tour that is going to show up in this novel again, like famous author, like getting trapped in this uh, small desert town. Uh the other thing this just to observe about like how these books were received is that what we are we what we have already said is not too dissimilar from what I have read in the press, which is uh people like basically desperation. Like the reception of the Green Mile, pretty positive. Reception of desperation, also pretty positive. People only talk about the regulators in brief, and most of the time, they are not very pleased with it. They're just, it is universally agreed, it seems like, that this is kind of the weaker book of the two. Uh, And so little is said about it that, well, it's not surprising, I guess, since I know the content of that book. Uh, But I guess it's sort of surprising that people aren't even talking about the content of that book to be like, can you believe this is the shit that happens? Uh, most of the time, uh, and this is another thing worth, I think, flagging, uh, most of the time people are talking about desperation and they're also talking about King in basically positive terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are talking about him in positive terms, uh, in ways that he used to be talked about negatively. So, uh, One of the things that, let me see if I have this right. Yes, okay. Um, uh, The uh, Polito review that I mentioned last time uh, talks a bit more extensively about this. And I I didn't bring this up last time. You asked, you know, does it bring up the Gnosticism stuff in the context of 90s pop culture? It actually doesn't. Uh, It's interesting because for Polito, this Gnostic theme is actually a uh, thing in American literature that King is keying into, and he thinks that Hmm. King is now exploiting it to a particular end. So I'll just read this. Yeah. Mr. King's omnipresence and the stunt quality behind his triple play, that's the three books in 1996, can obscure his genuine achievements, as well as trivialize what he loses with this push for product. Although his novels seldom advance a single memorable sentence, Mr. King harnesses a formidable facility for originating unforgettable situations and characters. The 30 horror novels, five carrying the name Richard Bachman, pseudonym, as the regulators, 
He has discharged over the 22 years since the publication of Carrie span a surprising variety of incident, subject, and tone. His situations and characters, moreover, intersect an an anxious, alienated culture with offhand authority. Mr. King is the latest, if least literary, manifestation of a Gnostic strain that has surged through American literature from Nathaniel Hawthorne and Edgar Allan Poe to recent writers as various as James Merrill, Norman Mailer, William Burroughs, and Thomas Pynchon. Mr. King's peculiar knack as a novelist is to strip away much of the complexity and nearly all of the art from a terrifying vision of an unknowable universe ruled by a limited, perhaps evil god, and insinuate that Gnosticism into the rituals and commodities of everyday America. The household derangements and the matter-of-fact malevolence inside Mr. King's fiction cut across the fears behind opinion polls, television talk shows, or any casual New York conversation. Random carnage, obscure wasting illnesses, sinister technologies, and the accelerating sense of a world gone wrong. Um, so this gets into uh, a little bit like, you know, how King uses pop culture characters to describe uh, his characters, right? Uh, mm-hmm. There's someone in uh, Desperation who's described as looking like Arlo Guthrie, for instance. Um, yeah, I mean, Stephen King won. I mean, yes. I, that, that, that's a lot of words to say. Uh, what occurred is that popular literature won over the kind of classed, uh, you know, capital L literature, American literature. And, and by one, I just mean it, you know, outproduced it to the extent that economically it suborned it and then changed public opinion about it. Right. Which is like popular literature has always outproduced and outsold any kind of given um, privileged literature. Right. You mm-hmm. know, um, uh uh, science fiction periodicals all, are always made more money than Norman Mailer, right? Maybe right. Not Mailer, but <laughs> then, then the vast majority of that kind of literati of America. Uh, what's happened in the 90s, though, is that public opinion itself, right? That critical opinion actually has turned that way as well uh, because uh, po- because postmodernism happened, I mean, essentially, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Um, people recognize that this is like a valid thing. I mean, we had, we referenced it the last time, right? We had an entire cannon war about it, uh, that happened at the highest halls of American academia and in the finest papers of America. (laughs) And what happened there is that the old fuddy duddies who love the, you know, Shakespeare bust, they lost. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, Stephen King won essentially. Yeah. And this is echoed in a New Yorker. A piece that comes out more or less contemporary, like still in 1996 with uh, the Polito piece. This is from a thing called The Tack of the Town by <laughs> Roger Angel. Uh, he runs through a paragraph where he uh, again mentions like how how often King uses contemporary brand names or like lines from commercials, things that readers are familiar with. Again, things that were uh, points of criticism earlier on in his career and then says, actually, this is good. All of King's wilder material is built upon this dead-on knowledge of a post-consumer America, which he views without the cushioning of sentiment or even irony. And perhaps he gets it right, or and because he gets it right, we're happy, even eager to accept his walk-on timber wolves heeding the otherworldly commands 
uh, me, him, me, him in Tao and the rest. His land is our land right out of USA Today and hard copy where the kids know computers, alcoholism, mass murders and all the bad words and share with us readers a grungy cultural DNA born of a million hours of rock lyrics, Jenny Jones and QVC television shows, mall shopping and the local late night news. For King, none of this is evil, even in the depersonalizing Walmartian sense. It's just there. This America is the old King place, his haunted house, and we hurry up the steps in response to his cheerful invitation, eager to find how he has made the boring landmark so fresh and scary once again. So, hmm. more of what you're saying, right? He won, yeah. right? Like, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Literature caught up to Stephen King. We're all just Murray Suskin from White Noise, right? Like <laughs> culture is just reading the back of cereal boxes. And like that is written <laughs> Delillo wrote that as parody, right? Of like mm-hmm. what is academia up to? But that's what we do now. Right. Uh, and that trickled down from uh debates that were happening uh, amongst the so so-called power brokers of <laughs> You know, culture and uh, recognize that popular literature actually matters. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, this is around the same time, too. We've talked about this a few times, but that, that King and Grisham and all those other people end up going to the National Book Awards. Right. Right. Uh, and Stephen King, you know, at this point, by 2023, you know, he's won every major national literary award. And that that's unthinkable in 1970. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, the New Yorker also, I, I meant to quote this part just because it's such a thing. That New Yorker piece also calls him the Winslow Homer of blood. All right. Yeah. Fine. Like famous New England painter who does uh, uh, kind of stormy, brooding, melancholy uh, pieces. Uh, so New England's there. Let's just trace it right through the Winslow Homer of blood. All right. Uh, yeah. So. I don't know. Any, any other thing we, we, we want to say here? Like, should people read this uh, if they're interested? Should people read the book? Yeah. Should they read Desperation? Like, is this is this one that like we're kind of ambivalently behind or is it more like, ah, you can skip I, it? It's. Uh, no, you shouldn't. <laughs> you shouldn't. Re- this is how I feel about. Uh, I, I have the same opinion on this that I have about um, Count Zero, the William Gibson novel, okay. which is that the first chapter of Count Zero is some of the best writing in American literature. Mm-hmm. The rest of that book is some of the worst writing in American literature. <laughs> the first chunk of this book, maybe the first like section, whatever it's called, yeah, you know, or part, maybe is that mm-hmm. what these like big pieces are? They're parts. I think so. The, the first two parts, maybe, of this book are some of the best writing Stephen King has ever done. Mm-hmm. The The rest of it is some of the worst writing he's ever done. <laughs> and it makes sense that The Regulators comes on the heels of it because it has the same tone. It is The issue with it is that it is infinite wheel spinning to give characters, infinite plot wheel spinning. Events really do not occur for a very long time. And that is done in order to constantly fill in backstory mm-hmm. in the way that he do, you know, does really excellently in It, for example. And to give characters, a big cast of characters for what this book has going on, a big cast of characters the capability to each have their spotlight moment. Mm-hmm. And most of them are very boring. And one <laughs> of them is a little kid who is Jesus. Uh-huh. And he's extremely boring. <laughs> 
<laughs> and so with all right it's like there's nothing structurally really wrong with it right mm-hmm. other than the fact that it's just maybe too long yeah you know this is a perennial king issue at this point um it's a little too long just like raw page numbers but a lot of these like johnny marinville right mm-hmm. this uh stephen king facsimile character that's basically him plus like a little bit more literary respect maybe um he's just boring yeah like he he doesn't go anywhere he goes from being like kind of a post addict who is grappling with being an asshole to being a good guy yeah and that that movement is two inches and he moves two inches over the course of 400 pages (laughs) and so and that happens for every character in the book they move but it's so marginal in how they move and ultimately has very little bearing on the output of the thing, which is a big fight between good and evil, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it feels a lot like the the problem that King himself acknowledges with the end of the stand, right? Which is like he didn't know where to go, so he blew everybody up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and or just like remove people from the novel, right? Like, uh oh, do you know what happens to all those people in Denver? Me neither. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> uh it's that kind of thing, right? Or in Boulder, not Denver. Yeah. Um, but uh uh, so yeah, I I think it has some classic King issues uh, across the board, and I think a summary is probably as good as anything else. But we'll get into this in just a minute. Th- that first piece is great. The per- yeah. you know it's it's uh, part of Stephen King's cop thoughts, uh, you know, in the nineties, <laughs> yeah, which are fascinating. Um, I you know I I've seen a few people kind of comment around listening to the show or whatever that you know King is like anti cop at this point in time. I don't know if that's true. Like I I don't actually get a sense that they're especially having read a bunch of these books in a row, right? Mm-hmm. I it almost feels like the the bad apple theory, right? Um, yeah, it, it's almost like King recognizes um like the 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 structural position of a police force right. in society as a point of potential like. Uh, horrific failure, right? But that yes, doesn't yes, mean that yeah. the position is bad. <laughs> right, yeah. It, it's a very libertarian view of the police, right? Mm-hmm. Which is like, the problem is the accrual of power, mm-hmm. right? And then the problem is like, when people use that power wrong, uh, you know, the, the problem is not, I'm trying to think of a fictional police, it's not Officer Krupke, even though he was <laughs> a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, he's, it, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's when your, uh, local deputy gets cursed by, uh, an evil demon. Uh-huh. Uh, it's when your local detective is, uh, a, you know, um, a cannibal. When right. he's Ted Bundy. That's yeah. the issue. It's not, weirdly enough, I guess Rose Matter is the closest it's gotten to a critique of the police. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, so I would, I would hedge a little bit here. Um, and especially knowing where King goes, kind of. Uh, I, I've never really thought I, I'll, I'll say this here and we'll like return to it at some point. I've never thought of King as someone who was fundamentally affected by 9-11. Um, uh-huh. He wrote a few 9-11 novels, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, Cell is one of those. I think yeah. you've mentioned that before. Um, but I've, I've never really thought about, you know, he's not Frank Miller, right? He, he did, it did not fundamentally warp his view of the American imaginary, mm-hmm. um, in, in some kind of way. And there's lots of, of authors that happen for, right? Um, uh, and yet <laughs> reading these nineties books make me, makes me think maybe I'm wrong in that. Maybe it actually mm-hmm. did. Uh, and I think one of those is his changing views of the police in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe that's wrong. We'll get there and figure that out. Do we want to just jump into the summary and then start talking about this book about weird cursed rocks and shit? Yeah, okay. All right. So, 
I'm going to do the five sentence summary, which is uh, the part of the show where one of us, this time it's me, uh, takes the book that we just read and off the top of their head, uh, summarizes it in five sentences. We're not reading a wiki summary and taking a long time. We're trying to remember the stuff that happened in these books. Sometimes they're very long and figure out how to condense them down into five sentences. Mm hmm. Desperation. All right. That's the title. That's not a sentence. I'm just I'm okay, great. setting us up. OK. Yep. A ragtag group of white people, including a family, some professors, a veterinarian, a guy who drives a truck, a famous author and a girl with dyed hair are all captured seemingly at random by a homicidal cop in the Nevada desert. The cop takes them to a mining town called Desperation, where quite conveniently he has already killed everyone else ahead of time, and he proceeds to supernaturally commune with various desert beasts, as well as uh, uh, start bleeding from his pores and lose body parts and various other awful things like that. Uh, long story short, colon... Uh, the town recently reopened an old mining operation and in the process unleashed an evil being called Tack, which possesses people and slowly destroys their bodies, necessitating that it jump between hosts every once in a while. That's that's three, I think. Um, that is three. Okay. The numbers of the captured people slowly dwindle through varieties of incident, uh, but ultimately they elect as their spiritual and I guess kind of literal leader an 11-year-old boy named David Carver, who made a deal with God to bring his uh, best friend uh, back in Ohio back from the brink of death, and now he owes God a favor. Uh, the favor ends up being destroying the mine and uh, sealing away Tack, uh, which he does with the help of the famous author uh, who sacrifices himself to explode the mine. And that's what happens at the end. Yep. Uh, that takes 400 pages to tell. Mm, yeah. And that's all that happens. Yep. <laughs> like really true. Eventually. Uh, yeah, it's just not, it's not great. I, I hate this little kid. <laughs> it's so... I hate David the child. It's so bad. <laughs> I hate his father Callahan. <laughs> oh. I, I don't care for it. Yeah. I can't wait to return to Father Callahan. Yeah, that's gonna be He's really coming back in another book, just FYI. I mean, yeah. we've alluded to that in previous things, but he will be, he will return in a future book. I won't tell you what it is in case you don't know. But uh, because we get David and his like weird Catholic priest here, mm -hmm. he's actually Methodist. Thank you. Oh, that's right. He is Methodist. That's <laughs> right. Right. He just has all of the trappings of a Catholic priest. He is a Catholic priest with the uh, <laughs> right. with the serial numbers filed right, off because he's also an alcoholic. <laughs> right. Right. He's just Father Callahan. Yeah. If you join the priesthood, uh, you know, uh, celibate or not, you gotta become an alcoholic. Right. That's Stephen King's uh, imaginary here. Uh, wasn't it Father Martin or something like that? Uh, yeah, Reverend Martin. 
Reverend Martin. I, I, I keep making him Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> you know who else is Martin? Martin Scorsese? No, we're going to read it about uh, in Wizard in Glass. Aren't we going to oh, read about Martin? Martin. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, we're going to have another Martin in the next book because it's the same guy, except he's in a very different position. Well, let's not uh, let's not spoil too much of that. Ooh, ooh, ooh. But yeah, so David, the, the whole deal is that this child makes a deal with God yes. uh, to get him to swap their places. And he's running up that hill. Uh-huh. Uh, and weirdly enough, kind of like Spider-Man, he runs up that building. Yeah, yeah. No, he. Uh, I mean, he's into the spider verse at the end. Spider verse is what I just the said. Spider verse. That's yeah. the uh, the Norwegian verse. <laughs> <Spider-verse>. <laughs> <laughs> the but no. Do so you like the spider verse? <laughs> that's like there's one step away from the Swedish chef. <laughs> uh, the uh, but no, more seriously. So this little kid, yeah, ex- exactly as you said, right? He basically like calls out into the nothing. He's he's got he's got the shining. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something like it. And uh, he calls out into the nothing and basically something responds and it heals his friend who has been hit by a car. Yes. Also, very, very kingy impression. Here. Uh-huh. It's bizarre. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, hit hit by a car and is in a coma and is going to pass away. And the child reaches out, makes a deal with God and. uh uh, brings his kid back to life and he's fine. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or b- brings him, as you said, the brink of death. And slowly over the course of this book, David is more and more aligned, not just with like God stuff and not even in a classic kind of kingy way of like <laughs> the supernatural. Like one could imagine um, a David here that has the shining in a very explicit kind of way and just interprets it as religion. You know, that mm-hmm. would be a very 80s king move, right? Um, you know, he could, he could be a, uh, what's the guy, Johnny from the dead zone, right. Who was just interpreting it through, through, uh, religion, which is kind of what, uh, you know, uh, uh, Halloran, right. That's kind of his deal too, right. Mm-hmm. Him and, his and it's also, uh, sort of how mother Abigail is figured in the stand as well. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So like there might, you know, we could imagine a world in which a more classic King would give us this kind of science fictional element and just have the character understand it as religious in nature, but the narrative voice might not hold it that way, right? It, or it mm-hmm. might, you know, draw a distinction between the two things. But that's not the case here. He's straight up doing loaves and fishes. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's do, he's uh, turning water into wine, mm-hmm. maybe. I can't remember <laughs> if that's true or not. But He's got this jewel that was slipped into his sabertash. <laughs> that's right. He's got a sabertash. He's <laughs> yeah. wearing a foolishing cloak. Uh-huh. He's got a big sword, and he's 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's the 1980s movie tagline version. <laughs> he's he's got a saber tash. He's got a great big sword in a massive journey. Also, he's 11. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the kid is just straight Jesus, and it uh, it requires you to buy into that to like make the plot go. You have to find this, I think, fulfilling in some way, or or uh, plausible, or at least agreeable <laughs> to accept everything that occurs, right? To like kind mm-hmm. of give yourself over to the narrative. And it's just so on face silly because it's so one-to-one. He's so Jesus um, that that it's almost like parody, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I found it very hard going yeah. in that regard. Yeah. I think uh, the, the first big sign that this is not going to go well is it's fairly early on and it's a bit where David like prays at some coyotes to make them go away. Yeah. Right? Like Yeah. 
He just like recites some Bible at them and the coyotes are like, whoa, and then they walk away like they're vampires they, they, or something. No, actually, they uh, uh, I think you, you're misremembering it. They uh, actually turn and they run and uh, it's a they're going through a tunnel through a uh-huh, mountain. Yeah. Uh-huh. And they just run right into it. They <laughs> smash, smash right into that that tunnel. It was fake. Yeah. David put it there. <laughs> uh, One of Jesus's most famous miracles. <laughs> right, right. Was putting, he putting got, a giant a he 2D got, image. He got Satan to buy a faulty rocket pack. <laughs> <laughs> um uh the uh okay, but more seriously. I'm I'm talking wild shit here. Let's talk about the good part. Let's actually start at the beginning and talk about the parts that are good, because there are good parts. Yeah. These people, all these characters that you talked about, they are they have made a choice. And this is such a great Kingian Americana thing. And it's a thing that goes all the way back to like Salem's Lot, right? The end of Salem's Lot in particular, which is that post World War II, particularly like post 1950s even, America's uh America's changing. And like look, in 2023 America's still changing. You know, there there's been a lot of writing the past few years in particular about the emptying out of rural America, mm-hmm. you know. Uh for a lot of the 20th century and into the 21st century, people lived in rural areas. They could still live in rural areas and they would simply commute to urban areas. Now that's even less possible, right? So yeah. like people are just abandoning rural areas now. Yeah. But King is honing into that, right? The fact that that's happening in the 70s, 80s, 90s. And he's written about this regularly across all all those time periods. You know, the end of Salem's Lot explicitly is making the claim that Salem's Lot is a town full of vampires that will still kind of be able to exist and just fade from memory because it's off the beaten track, right? It's off Mm -hmm. the highway. If you go there, you have to want to do that. You know, weirdly enough, it's kind of like the film. Uh, a return to Salem's Lot, which during the strike, I do not encourage you to go watch, um, <laughs> even though I don't know if it was made under a deal with AMPGP or not. Now, uh, so what's fascinating, right, is that, you know, he says explicitly, and the, and the book is written in this way, that there is an interstate highway, you know, a big highway, and there's like state highway, and uh, they are, every character here has made the choice to take the smaller highway over the big interstate, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're going to detour through small-town America. And this is a thing that goes all the way back to Children of the Corn as well, right? Like, that's what makes that story work, is that you're off the beaten path, you're in a place that's that's hard to understand, uh, hard to navigate, especially in a time before, you know, global positioning systems. And uh, weird shit happens. Um, and, uh, weird shit happens here. And I, and I love that. And when they go through these places, they start seeing, you know, animal corpses thrown up on, uh, uh, what do you call it? On road signs, weird mm-hmm. graffiti, you know, that's very children in the corn. Yeah. Um, more weirdly enough, more children of the corn, the, the film, you can see the reference kind of <laughs> yes. bleeding back into, into King's work. Uh huh. Uh, and then they all get stopped by, I, I keep wanting to say Etrigan, mm-hmm. and it's not Etrigan from DC Comics. No, it's a Kali Intragian. Intragian. Uh, and, uh, he's this evil, massive cop. And yeah. he's, he's like such a, he's a, he's a trickster. Mm-hmm. He tricks all of them to begin with. Right. Because there seems to be some sort of like, 
devilish um, deal going on with him, right? Like, he has protocols he has to go through, right? He he is a cop, and he pretends to be a cop, and he does cop stuff up to the point where he doesn't have to do cop stuff anymore. And that's brought up at the beginning that, huh, it's interesting that he, like, follows these protocols and then abandons them, and then the book forgets about all that because it doesn't yeah. care. But it seems to be kind of important at the beginning that there are, like, rules to the way that he has to interact with these people and kind of trick them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then later on, that just disappears. But uh, fascinating. Good stuff. I, how'd you feel about this? This first stuff with him kind of gathering the crew? Yeah, I, it's good because it's uh, I mean, it feels like hit the ground running horror novel stuff mm-hmm. like the mm-hmm. sort of the strongest and most straightforward horror novel stuff we have gotten from King in, in a while. Uh there's a note that I have here that we can touch on because I don't know if you necessarily agree, but um, it's something that I'll probably revisit th- during our discussion. Uh, the last it's not that since sobriety, because this is the other thing that's going to hang over this book pretty heavily is uh, uh, sobriety. Um, it is not that since sobriety, King has uh, only written bad books because we've in fact called out specific books that were pretty good in, in that run, right? We were both pretty impressed by Dolores Claiborne, for instance. Mm-hmm. There were things we liked about The Green Mile, uh, Rose Matter, all that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think like in, in terms of like hit rate, mm-hmm. it's about the same as before, but the, I would say maybe the hits are not as extreme. Mm-hmm. Right. They are they are good down the middle novels like just well, you know, the Green Mile content wise, I think we had a lot of issues with. But in terms of structure, in terms of readability, in terms of like not going off the rails (laughs) in bizarre ways, right, might be better than the vast majority of the books from the 80s, just in terms of like our ability to get through it and enjoy it. Yeah. Um, And definitely the same for Dolores Claiborne. Right. Yeah. And even like the dark half as a kind of the first real post sobriety novel, uh, we were both pretty high on. We were like, yeah, this yeah, is great. this is good. Right. This is like good middle tier king up at mm-hmm. the top of the middle tier. Um, uh, but there has been something about the novels since then that has also been a little searching in my estimation. Uh, it, I, there's been a lot of King has been experimenting a lot with the types of stories he tells, how he tells them, what are the things that show up in his stories? There, there's been a real searchingness, I think. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a novel that feels confident. It, it, it feels like Steve sort of knew what he wanted to do with this, and then he did it. Now, that might run into some overconfidence, uh, especially as the novel goes on. Um, but there feels to me like a, a kind of like snapping together of certain things. And this might also be, and it's important to flag this, this might be some rose colored glasses on my part, because the other strong feeling that I had in starting to read this and kind of like getting into the groove of the novel um, was the feeling of like, oh, this is the Stephen King that I knew. This is the Stephen King who was writing when I was starting to read Stephen King. Mm. Uh, And to put it in the sappiest terms, right, uh, it's 1996 and, like, my Uncle Stevie is here. The the guy who I was, like, following most closely in his interviews and his media appearances and the things that he said online. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that... uh, I think I, I have a similar feeling, although I'd probably put it differently... This is the one of the few times that I feel that he is reaching back and trying to play with some of the toys that he invented in the 70s. Yes. Like that that's uh, because like Dolores Claiborne Rose Matter 
the Green Mile, they are all very in insomnia too, in some ways, are all very purposeful reinventions. Mm-hmm. You know, they are. I'm I'm going to play with new tools. I'm going to write different types of novels. Right. I'm going to find new types of characters uh, that I haven't really engaged with before. Right. Um, and obviously, you know, as we've talked about, they're all in continuity with the previous stuff. It's not like, you know, he's a blank slate or something like that. But this is one of the first times where I'm like, okay, this is 70s King writing some horror stuff. You know, it's just a guy who uh, is going to do some evil trickery on you and then shoot your husband in the belly mm-hmm. and then imprison you. Right. Like mm-hmm. and it's going to be bloody and gory and horrible. He's going to be sweating blood the whole time. It's mm-hmm. disgusting. It's grotesque. Um, it's all that kind of, you know, night shift stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then also it's going to get stapled on to these other concerns that we've seen since like 1990 or so. And so for me, it's like, okay, this is a career confident king and not just a post sobriety confident king. Yes. You know what I mean? Right. Like it's, it's not my new toolbox. It's my whole garage of tools. Right. I I, career confident is also, I think probably how I would conceive of this, right? This is, uh, he is, it feels like he has been trying to figure out who he is and what he does as a writer. And this is his first kind of, uh, confident move toward being like, okay, this is who I am now, right? This is my past and sort of Mm -hmm. how I'm going to reorient it toward the future. Like the, the whole thing with, you know, the the homicidal cop who's just like pulling you over in the middle of the desert and like taking you to the town where he's already killed everyone. Like you're you're right. That's such like classic 70s uh, high concept with a lot of gas to it. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, one step away from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's literally the same setup. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, and that's good. Right. I mean, that's King being involved, I think, in that and especially in a time where. You know, it's the mid '90s. That's this is not what horror is in the mid '90s. Certainly not like uh, the kind of uh, visual horror that King is most engaged with. You mm-hmm. know, I I really do not associate King, as we've talked about over the show. He has less in conversation with horror literature. You know, maybe, maybe the classic stuff he is, but contemporary horror literature, he's less in conversation with that than he is with horror film. Mm-hmm. And the, this kind of story is a little bit out of vogue in the mid '90s, right? Am I am I not wrong with that? I mean, we're about to enter the like meta horror moment you know mm-hmm. scream and whatnot yeah um and so you know this is in and this is also the like infinite slasher time period um yeah you know friday the 13th has just run out of steam so has nightmare on elm street which is also about to hit, enter it's if it hasn't already it's meta horror moment yeah as well so like th- there's a way that this is a return to basics not just for king but for the popular genre that he helps jumpstart in the 70s mm-hmm. um and so i you know i see all of that as being really really in the mix there yeah no i agree there there are parts of this that feel almost like a a, a dean Koontz novel all right i thought yeah. a lot about uh, dean Koontz's novel phantoms which might be my favorite dean Koontz novel but i haven't read mm-hmm. it in a long time but it's, it's starring uh, ben affleck yeah starring ben affleck <laughs> A bunch of people go to a town in what i think is colorado and find uh everyone's already dead and well, you know, it goes other places from there, but it, it has that kind of uh, feeling to it of uh, uh, like paperback original horror novel that you would have grabbed off the mm-hmm. drugstore counter in 1989. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I once saw this movie about uh, people going to space and finding a spaceship and everyone was already dead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> except for the guy from Jurassic Park. <laughs> Um, 
but but yeah, so I you know I think that it, it is um, a really great kind of career style throwback, but also as you're saying, stapling on some of the um, newer concerns of King. Uh, do you want to? Do we maybe want to talk about the cast of characters? We don't have to talk about how they're all captured because yeah. some of them are extremely boring, but we can maybe name them all because <laughs> I don't know all their names. Yeah, shocker. So, so uh, our entry characters for the whole thing are. Uh, Peter and Mary Jackson. Huh. Peter yep. Jackson. Yeah. Uh-huh. Interesting. Uh, there are a couple of uh, intellectuals from, I believe, upstate New York. Peter is a college professor. She is a poet. Uh, they are driving around a car on behalf of Peter's sister, Marielle, who is a huge West Coast hippie. Um it turns out that Marielle has left some weed in their trunk, and so when they get pulled over, uh, Intragian finds that, and they're like, oh, god damn it, why did you do this, Marielle? But then they realize, like, oh, we were we were doomed either way. Uh, particularly, you called her a hippie when when clearly in this in the 90s parlance, she's a burnout. Yeah, she has a yeah, she has a burnout, right? Uh, right. Uh, anyway, uh, they are headed for trouble because Peter gets yeah. shot at the end of like the first chapter. Like that's how we establish that Intragian is is a real bad dude. So Mary comes out of mm-hmm. that and she gets put into jail, where she meets all of the other characters who have been captured. Um, but before that, at, right right after or right before her husband gets shot, she sees the other corpse, which is a little girl. Uh, who got pushed down some stairs. This turns out to be the uh, younger daughter of the Carver family who were captured in their RV. Uh, uh, Carvers are parents, uh, Ralph and Ellen. Um, Ellen is just kind of there until she becomes a second body for Tack after Intragian really gives out. And that's really that's really what she does. She's she's mm-hmm. other than that, not much of a character. There is Ralph, who was described in one uh, review or article I read as like uh, an interminable wuss of a father. Which is what he is like. He is just yeah, a- just a little worm, <laughs> just a little worm dad. Uh, then there is their son, uh, David, who is the second coming of Christ. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, the weird thing about that is that he's not really the second coming of Christ. Like I, I have more to say on this when we get into the religious yeah. content, because it's more like all of the like semiotics of Christ pop up around him to validate the authenticity of his spiritual connection. Uh, but if there's a Christ in this novel, it's Johnny Marinville, who is yeah. a world famous uh, author, uh, king in another interview that I read, um, talked about him as a uh, composite of, and I, I quote King's words here, uh, white male writers, unquote, uh, that he was particularly uh, sort of influenced by or, or fascinated by in the 60s and 70s. Um, so Marinville is very successful, but success, like, uh, he is, he is King style successful. If you wrote King style success back into like the earlier, like post-war generation, yeah. uh, because it's, yeah, he's like kind of half King, half Kerouac. Yes. Right. Like, uh, former alcoholic, but also like a freewheeling soul. He's a little almost Hemingway-esque too, because yes. we keep getting these like, you know, he would show up and go places and make big, big uh, claims and be belligerent, you know, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of Tom yeah. Wolf. Like, oh, yeah, because absolutely. he's like he's uh, running around in kind of high society. He married a famous film star who is uh, not named, but I think we're supposed to take her as kind of like a version of Elizabeth Taylor because she it, she's constantly yeah. mentioned as having a lot of emeralds instead of diamonds. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh uh yeah, who wait, wait. Uh who married uh who's the author who married uh Marilyn Monroe? Arthur Miller. Yeah, right. So there's yeah. a little bit of that. Mm-hmm. Like it's that relationship that is composited onto a slightly later time period, basically. Yeah. Um, so that's Johnny Marinville. He's, he's a, uh, an author who's doing a cross country tour on a motorcycle, hoping to write some essays, uh, that, that will come out of this experience because his career is kind of flagging. He's pitched this idea to his publisher, like, Hey, what if I did basically travels with Charlie, um, the Steinbeck thing, like Mm -hmm. a, a sort of riff on that, uh, and uh, he gets captured by Intragian as he is peeing in the desert. And then Intragian pretends to be a fan of his. And uh, that's how he is caught. Um, God, there's the, him being caught is such an elab. It's it is classic King uh-huh. because it is. I need to explain to you every step of hiding a man's motorcycle in the desert. Yep. It is. It is beat by beat. It's like it is the worst, like, impulses of sci-fi king, right? Like, I got to explain it all combined with the worst impulses of the crime king, right? You know, the dark half style where, mm-hmm. like, beat by beat, we get that explained to us. It is interminable. It it drives, it grinds the beginning of the book, which is great, directly to a halt mm-hmm. where it's like, and then he, he then he walked it out. 50 yards into the desert, pushing it over. Now, one could assume over the course of the next several hours that the blowing sand's like, what are you? What are we doing, Steve? Why this? Just throw it in the woods. Who cares? (laughs) I mean, yes. I mean, the addiction to over-explaining things. Uh, It's uh, a great example of this is... um, uh, one of the first thing, like people pass the RV that the Carvers were driving and <laughs> yeah. you see all the little details, right? There's like a little girl's doll lying in, in the uh, middle of the road. Uh, and that little girl got pushed down the stairs by Intrigian, by the way. So she's yeah. like dead before the novel even begins. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, like someone like pops their head in and they notice like, oh, like the door was hanging open. Like, oh, the kids baseball cards were out, this, that and the other. Uh, all of the tires are flat. So something happened. There's all this stuff, all these details that are like great and evocative and allow you to tell a story. And then, of course, we have to get the full flashback where we see from everyone's perspective what it was like when Intrahian like uh, uh, popped all their tires with a uh, like a tire strip or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like tricked them into getting into his car and then took them into town even though you could just after the first like encounter with the Trigian through the Jacksons it's like okay I figured out how this works yeah no one cares no <laughs> one cares how he got them to the jail it doesn't matter <laughs> like sure no one is like how did they do that and it's so elaborate he like mm-hmm. invents a plot that there is a man with a gun in the hills and so everyone needs to get in the back of his police car and it's such a I it yeah it, mm-hmm. it again like every moment of explanation is just I mean look it it is it's classic king hard to be mad about the master at work uh-huh. <laughs> like, God it's uh it's slow but anyway so we got we got Johnny Marinville we got the yep. Carvers we got the Jacksons who yep. else we got uh so on the trail of Johnny is Steve Ames who is basically like a former roadie. 
who has been hired by Marinville's publisher to follow him during his cross-country trip to make sure he does not get into any trouble and kind of keep tabs on him. And they wanted him to, like, you know, actually travel with him, but Marinville was like, no, it's got to be me alone on the open road. And they're like, all right, so Steve's just going to, like, drive behind you at a distance of 30 miles. Yeah. Uh, He picks up a uh, hitchhiker, a young woman named Cynthia Smith, uh, who you may recognize as a character from Rose Matter. Uh, And she talks extensively about things that happened in Rose Matter and characters from that book. Uh, So there you go. Like, she's just here. She's like a, a, you know, 90s punk girl. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And if people don't remember, she is the woman who uh, got... uh, at the festival, she's the first woman who gets attacked by the evil husband. Yeah. Uh, and he, like, smashes her head up against a wall a bunch of times. I think we called that out as, like, one of the most brutal descriptions in that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, she is back. D- did you find any explanation for this? Has King ever talked about why he chose to bring her back specifically? No, not that I can find. And weirdly enough, no one is, like, noting this or asking it in, in reviews, right? It's like a huh. it's a thing that if people are noticing it, they don't seem to care much about it. Yeah, I mean, it is. It kind of doesn't matter, I guess. Yeah. I, even though, and one would assume she would be like, "Not again." <laughs> and she, I mean, there are a couple of those moments, but it is not made as big a deal of as, as I would make in my life if I had mm-hmm. encountered two uh, monstrously, uh, you know, supernaturally enhanced weirdos who attacked me. Right, who were uh, also cops. <laughs> y- yes, right? right? It's like a real like double whammy in your life. Right. She does bring that up. She's like, man, yeah. Norman, the cop who attacked me, doesn't seem like he's half as bi- or like you know, he, basically she's like, this other guy, this other cop, he seems like he's real bad business, and like, I've met some shitty cops in my time. Yeah. Uh, I had, for Steve Ames, I had, uh, for some reason, I don't have like a mental image of all these people, you know, in my mind. That's not a thing I do all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because of course all these characters are Muppets. Uh, mm-hmm. but no, for I did I did the have Muppets two... desperation. Well, I yeah. <laughs> well, everyone's a Muppet except for in Trajan. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I do have like very clear mental images of a couple of these people. Uh, or just like you know brain casts. Johnny Marinville is Wilford Brimley <laughs> in my brain <laughs> from Hard Target, and uh, Steve Ames is Stephen Weber. Mm-hmm. Did you, you know, who plays him in the thing that no one should watch? No, I don't. Stephen Weber. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. In the miniseries, which, again, you should not watch. Uh, I'm pretty sure he is played by Stephen Weber. Yeah, you should not watch it until the AMPTP comes to the table and offers uh, SAG and uh, the Writers Guild exactly what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, That's very funny. I yep. did not know that. I purposely not known that. <laughs> Uh, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, hey, can, can I oh. tell you something sad? Sure. We had the opportunity to interview Mick Garris. Oh no. But, but the, their, the promotional ban is on. Oh so, no. Yes. So we didn't. Oh no. Of course it happens now. Of course it happens. Yeah. Well, yes, actually, yes, right? of course it happens now. That's part of the deal. But uh, isn't that funny? Yeah. Maybe in the future. Maybe in the future. I've got a better email than I did before. How about that? Right. Well, it's like we've tried so hard to get our our like voices and mix on the same uh, program. And mm-hmm. uh, OK. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, uh, oh, uh, other characters. So. um yep. 
Who am I missing? Uh, then there is Tom Billingsley, the local veterinarian, retired veterinarian of desperation, uh, who is also an alcoholic. Uh, and he just got up one day and uh, Intrigian was like, hey, uh, come with me to the police station. Oops, you're in a jail cell now. And uh, that's him. He gets eaten by a cougar. Uh, then, oh, oh, Audrey, uh, Audrey Weiler, who is another woman from desperation, who, uh, uh, a survivor whom, uh, isn't, uh, a survivor they encounter after they've escaped from the, uh, jail. Like all of the characters have, uh, at some point, uh, eventually escape from the jail cells where Intrigian has put them. They meet this, uh, woman, Audrey, who's another survivor. She used to work for the, uh, mining company. Provides a lot of exposition, uh, but it turns out she has survived for a purpose. Uh, she sort of unknowingly or, or like she has been suborned by the evil that is Tack uh, and is working with him uh, in a kind of conscious slash unconscious way. And then that all boils over uh, during the same cougar attack, actually. Um, and then there is Tack itself, which is. uh a big formless evil, which is nothing yeah. like truly and literally nothing. Right. Yes. Right. It is uh, f- f- like a, a, a dangerous nothing is what David eventually calls it. Mm-hmm. Right. You, uh, in the King cosmology, what do you think this thing is? You, you got any because uh, eventually we're getting very close over the next year. We are going to learn so much about the King cosmology mm-hmm. and then he's going to do so much to back off of it. It's yes. actually kind of wild. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is. It is interesting how quickly the gas is pressed and how quickly the brakes are pressed after that. Yeah. Um, but do you have like a, you know, people love to spin up a coherent Here's how all the King stuff fits. Does Tack fit in there for you somewhere? Well, there is evidence in this book that suggests that Tack is, um, if not the same thing as, then in some way like analogous to or like isomorphic to uh, whatever you want to call the collective intelligence of the Overlook. Mm -hmm. uh, Because of uh, certain things that we'll talk about at the end, I guess. And when we get into the Kingiverse, uh, uh, what Tack thinks of itself is that it's God. And in that mm-hmm. sense, it's Randall Flag, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much like Randall Flag in that it it considers itself sort of divine, um, but a, a rancid divinity, right? It, it revels in its own evil, uh, but it is also stupid in that way. Uh, stupid in the sense that, like, it is because it is so self concerned, it does not understand fully like the moves that are being made against it. It's too haughty. Uh, you know, evil defeats itself, as we love to say, and there are. Uh, Uh, several machinations in this book where evil defeats itself, mainly because it is so confident that it is going to win that it does not realize uh, the mistakes that it is making or sort of the opportunities uh, that it is leaving unforeclosed. Yeah, this is the first time, you know, I think you introduced evil defeats itself way Mm -hmm. back, like many years ago on the show as like a a core belief of King. Yeah. um, That shows up over and over again. This is the first time, I, as far as I know, that that is written into the text. Yes. <laughs> like, the book says this kind of evil defeats itself. Yeah. Uh, uh, so there's a scene uh, in kind of the two-thirds mark where David is starting to, you know, put things together slash receive direct communications from God that are giving him a critical exposition and also, frankly, a lot of non-critical exposition. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah. Just uh, some information about yeah. the world. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and David is talking about how like, oh, you know, the uh, TAC, when it was in Intrigian, it thought that it was uh, capturing us at random. And what it was doing, right, sort of like by its own sort of thinking, is that it's uh, br- getting a reserve of bodies. Again, like when TAC inhabits a body, uh, the body does not last. And if there are any health issues, then uh, the degradation of the body happens much more rapidly uh there's like a guy who has like an undiagnosed prostate cancer for instance um and so when tack goes into him he's dead within like a day because all of the latent health issues get brought to the surface along with the the body horror of like you know sweating blood and like spitting out your own tongue and that sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah um, it's just uh it, just corruption yes uh so uh uh, David is like, oh, like, you know, it Tack thought that it was just kind of like, you know, uh, picking up fruit at a market, right? Randomly picking people off the road because uh, Tack does let other people just drive on through. Not everyone who goes by desperation ends up getting waylaid. Uh, mm-hmm. And David is like, actually, uh, in picking all of us, uh, we were being selected by another power, which is David's God. Uh, we were being brought together to form a kind of uh, bond or a union against the forces of Tack. And uh, this is this is, you know, the like God's long plan is that we were all chosen to be here. Tack thought it was choosing us randomly, but in fact, it was uh uh, falling in with a different purpose than it yeah, quite understood. This is just the stand again. Yes, exactly. This is you know, uh, my this is the uh, trash can man. My life for you, hand of God stuff. Yeah, right. Like, mm-hmm. did you know in fact that this was all a big reset button by a a, a vengeful or, or judgmental and yet ultimately uh, beneficent God? Right, mm-hmm. and uh, we even get Nadine Cross again. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, like that's exactly what what his name Audrey. Yes, uh, that that's exactly what the character is. You yep. know, someone who is presented as like part of the crew to begin with, but is actually a betrayer. Yep. Uh, Who's like too tall? I I do <laughs> love the way this is done uh, because when when Tack comes into you or has influence on you, you get big. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, Severian's dream uh, <laughs> universe, right? Mm-hmm. But so, you know, Intrajan is already like 6'5 or something and is made like nearly seven feet tall by Tack. And everyone keeps talking about how Audrey, uh, her like legs are long and her, her skirt's really short. Yeah. And like, you know, like all these dudes are so horny for it. Uh huh. Did you know it was plot critical horniness? <laughs> yes, that was so funny. Because she has become a, the reason we you know we learn that she's being influenced by Tack is that she's too tall and so her skirt becomes too short. It was a sensible skirt before, Michael, uh-huh. but now it's too short. <laughs> Plot critically too short. Dun dun dun. Yeah, um, uh, but I do think that's yeah. fun. I mean, you know, like goofiness aside, right? The the revelation that wait a minute, this woman's too big. Mm-hmm. That's fun. That's a right. cool. Little little turn. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and she's... Well, we can talk about that, I guess. So, yeah, you, you were asking about what is Tack. Actually, this, yeah. this is maybe yeah, a good yeah. transition. Because the other thing that Tack's got going on... So, uh, Tack lives in a cave. Or rather, uh, there is a cave deep in the mine that was discovered in the 19th century. Um, we can talk a whole lot about, like, the whole backstory there, right? The haunted mine or whatever. Uh, yeah. But within the cave, there is, like, an altar. And then there is, like, a deep 
uh, uh, sort of jagged like funnel pit uh, that is called by tack. So the other thing that happens in this book is that tack has its own language um, and tack calls it the any or the well of worlds. Uh, and it is said that tack as kind of a formless nothing, right? As kind of an evil spirit exists on uh the earth side of this thing. And if Tack has anything approximating a body, it's on the other side of the well of worlds. And it can kind of uh, uh, like slip through, like it's described sometimes as like smoke or whatever smoke that takes on the form of a snake. Uh, it's weirdly elder scrolls. Yeah, it is actually. <laughs> uh, it is. It's very uh, uh, fantastical in, in precisely that way, like metaphysical, fantastical. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of statues uh, that have been scattered around this cave uh, called the Cantaz. Uh, wait, is that? Yeah, it's the Cantaz. Yeah, yeah, Cantaz. Uh, Cantac Canta. Yeah, well, uh, Cantac. Big God, little God. Yes. Uh, the Cantacs are like the giant uh, uh, statues that are already there that can't be moved. And they have like mm -hmm. various forms, like a a, uh, a coyote with a an open mouth and within its mouth is a snake or like Ooh, you know, scary right or like uh, a spider and in the spider's pincers is a vulture right there it's always this is actually one of the really nice things I like about kind of the mythology here is um, and I don't know if King might actually be pulling this from something uh, uh, it's it's like not explicitly like it's not explicitly said that this is like Native American and in fact it is uh posited as being something that even like predates like native american habitation of of uh the west um mm -hmm. so who knows but it's uh always said that like the the cantax uh or the cantaz these kinds of big gods little gods these statues uh it is a mouth within a mouth right that's like uh uh the the avariciousness of it right the hunger mm -hmm. of it just like stacks on forever and i think that's a, a really nice kind of like yes yeah, steve i saw alien too <laughs> yes right i know what the xenomorph looks like what if the <laughs> xenomorph was a vulture yeah there is this i i think you're exactly right in in pointing out the shakiness of this too right where it's yeah. like you know it's a little uh vaguely it feels in some way appropriative yes, of, of some right. real world faith but so far off that it's like i don't know if this could be or not you know it's a real uh like uh it's it feels like the 90s in a lot of ways right <laughs> yeah. Where, you know you know you just look at some stuff from the 90s and you're like man this feels like it's ripping somebody off <laughs> yeah. i don't i don't know who and under you know and what it exactly is being ripped off here you know i think a lot about the 90s in the way that like uh like uh, Aboriginal Australian, you know, mm -hmm. like uh, imagery was used all the time in America in yes. advertising and stuff. And you're like, this is kind of, this is definitely ripping these people off. But I don't know what part of their culture it's ripping off or is if it's significant or not, or yeah. if it's like, you know, a simulacra of a simulacra of a simulacra. Right. Like, right. Where did this? So, yeah, the, the whole time I was reading this, I was like, the whole tech thing feels like. King was ripping across Arizona on that motorcycle and, you know, went into a like a kitsch store uh -huh. and saw like someone's 1970s rip off of some actual indigenous art from 100 years before. And, uh, you know, we're getting this by a game of telephone or something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it does have that kind of thing. And we do get all these like scavenger creatures, you know, the the, the quote unquote lower of yeah. the the animals. Yeah, the can toy. Um, yeah. 
right? Uh, there's like a whole language that Tack speaks called the language of the unformed. Um, and that's where all these uh, uh, terms are coming from. The great, the can tack, the can and the can toy. Uh, the, so yeah, the, the, these statues, then the little ones, um, when you touch them, uh, they make you go nuts. They make you turn evil. Uh, uh, they are like carried. <laughs> One of the most ridiculous, uh, kind of scenes from the later novel is when, uh, Tack is finally out and about and like, uh, uh, you know, has the mind is open. Like people are getting possessed. Like desperation is in its final days. Uh, and all of the low creatures have been summoned and they are like marching down into the mine and picking up the cantas and then like taking them out and like hiding them around town to places where people will find them and touch them. And this turns them into various things. It might make them like uh, uh, compulsively sexual in ways that are deviant. Uh, there is a, like the, the actual local sheriff is described as like having got his, gotten his hands on a can taw that made him like masturbate while wearing women's underwear, for instance. And then like in Trajan, like comes in and shoots him while he's doing that. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Stephen King's most horrifying vision. Well, it certainly is the nineties, right? Yeah. Well, and like the other wild thing about that is that it's the sort of thing like, the Kanta you don't know about when you when the corpse is discovered, right? That's sort of a detail that's added later. But it's a thing that's kind of clear that that's what was going on when the corpse is discovered. Uh, and then we still have to have later on David lay this all out for us after he receives his exposition visions from God. Uh, because, you know, if there's one thing God needs to do, it's <laughs> to explain the specific situation in which this man was jerking off and then died. Um, <laughs> well, the, I mean, so yes, right. Like, of course, and to, and to make sure that kid tells us about it, right, right? exactly. It's not, it's, not, it's not just that he could, would, you know, be shown it in this like God vision, right? Right. It's that he needs to tell us about it. Right. What's very funny about the Cantos to me is that is probably the most explicit thing that is told to us. Yeah. Of the Cantos stuff, right? It's mostly, yeah, it makes people go mad, you know, they kill each other, they do bad stuff or whatever. And also this one guy jerked off to death. But the other yeah. ones, you know, whatever, you get it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, God really wanted to be explicit about that one. Yes. <laughs> God really wanted us to know about this one. Uh, oh, can, can I say a thing before, because we won't return to it. Sure. And it, it takes up so much book time, but... It, it, there's nothing to say about it. It is interesting. You mentioned earlier, you know, the first uh, child, you know, the, the little girl from the Carver family. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, she's thrown down the stairs and killed like immediately. Basically, that's one of the first deaths in the book uh -huh. you know, chronologically, as far as these characters are concerned. It's so interesting to me that that uh, we go back to the, uh, you know, the pet cemetery. Right. You know, yeah. think think all the way back to that. Stephen King was like, this is so bleak. I don't know if I could publish it. Right. Uh -huh. like, and. It, from that point to 1996, we're throwing a kid down the stairs immediately, and <laughs> we're going to think about it a little bit, but it's not even beyond the pale, right? Like, mm -hmm. that's normal. That's perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, the difference in those things and the way that they're led up to, they do feel different or whatever, but it is fascinating how much, like, that's just part of the King toolbox now, right? Like, yeah. it's not it's not a bridge too far. A bridge yeah. too far is people peeing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, uh, the other interesting thing about the Cantas is that they're described as being like slipped inside mailboxes and things like that. Uh, yeah. this is, uh, the milkman stories from oh, Skeleton yeah. Crew, right? Yeah. 
like uh like once tack is kind of working it's it's malevolence over the whole town uh it's i had this like very strong memory of like oh yeah this is in in the milkman stories there was the same kind of feeling of king setting up a a little town a little area a little neighborhood that's going to be important for the next book um oh, yeah Right. Where this kind of malign outside force comes in and like leaves them little things that then uh, uh, make them start destroying each other. That's also needful things as well. Right. Um, but it's all kind of oblique and, and shoved off screen here in, in this novel. Yeah, um, I w- I'm actually looking that up. So I, this, the King short story seems to maybe predate this, but the Tylenol murders. Do you do you remember this? Oh, that sounds very familiar, but I don't know. I had to the look specifics. up the date just now from 82. So it's it is basically the reason why pill bottles like off the shelf, right. shelf pill bottles have the like, you know, break, the seal uh-huh. uh, to make sure that it hasn't been broken into before, because I believe that I'm not going to read all about it right now to do it. But I believe the the um, deal is that someone just went into like a CVS, essentially, and put cyanide in random Tylenol bottles uh, in the early 80s. It was 82 in Chicago. Um, and that that that's kind of the, you know, the milkman mm. stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then that's also these canned toys, right? Like random chaotic evil. Right. Yeah. Anyway, just, yeah. just I had not connected those things before, I don't think. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so, yeah, that's definitely something at play there and that's also this is this is how audrey got turned evil is that she's not explicitly uh possessed by tack but she touched a cantaw that uh made her gamify collecting cantaws so her entire thing is that she's like addicted to them and it is described explicitly in terms of feeling like addiction uh where she just has to like search out more cantaws and like put them in her pockets um and uh that that's why she get big yeah yeah I'm going to collect it. They should make this a video game. You go you go around and collect Cantaz and you get like percentile bigger for every Cantaz you get. Yeah. <laughs> Until you're very tall. Desperation very. go. Um what what else is that? Is that all of our cast of characters? Those are all the main characters. Yeah. There are other sort of like incidental characters who show up in the exposition, like the guy who uh, ends up being the first person that Tack possesses, and he's like a huge asshole who doesn't believe in safety regulations. So we can feel okay about the fact that he gets possessed by Tack and his body is destroyed in a day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I like that Tack is thinking because we get, of course, we cannot have uh, any of this without putting us in the mind of Tack for some reason. Uh-huh. Like it can't just be a chaotic evil. We need to know what the chaotic evil is thinking. And uh, at one point, he's like, "Well, I could jump into a rat." but it would explode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I can't. Oh, that's such another like, uh, so, yeah, there's a point where, so Tack, uh, eventually, uh, Intragian's body fails to the extent that Tack has to jump into a new host. It chooses Ellen, who is David's mother. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's still like walking around, like wearing Intragian's hat. And it, it's, you know, actually a pretty good slasher villain, right? This idea of a slasher villain who changes forms, but then like takes bits of like the previous uh, form and like keeps it in the clothing or whatever, you know, some sort of, I don't know, villain who collects trophies. Um, but, uh, then, uh, uh, after that, like everyone escapes, uh, Tack is like, shit, 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 shit. Uh, uh, Ellen had a yeast infection, which means that her body isn't lasting as long as it should. 
Um, and uh, Tack doesn't have other bodies, so it's like, as you said, oh, I could jump into a rat, but the rat would explode immediately because I'm so powerful. And then like 15 pages later, it's like, Tack had forgotten that golden eagles were perfectly fine to be its host. Yeah. So then it jumps into a golden eagle and like, you know, does some other shit that needs to happen for the end of the book to happen. But <laughs> yeah, it's like the the truly, uh, you know, I've used this term a few times, but the wet fart of, <laughs> of uh, demonic transformations. Mm -hmm. uh, King wrote that part of the gunslinger and he's just itching to get back to a bird attacking a guy as uh, <laughs> like a critical scene. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's just so much like weird wheel spinning that happens, right? Where he like abducts. Is it Cynthia who gets abducted and then taken to the mine and then escapes the mine? Oh, uh, that no, that's stuff? Mary. Oh, that's Mary. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, you know, and all these characters, they don't have enough characterization for me, at least other than Johnny Marinville to really feel all that different. You know, it's like, I guess one's weak willed. One's an alcoholic, you know, and, and King's working out some feelings there. One is a guy who calls another guy boss. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then there are uh, some women, one of whom is cursed, one of whom has had this experience before, and the other of whom is just a person, uh -huh. um, like generic person woman. Um, mm -hmm. So they 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 are not as and for reasons that are logical, right? They it is the stand again, but without the same amount of scaffolding that you need to make those characters really stick out. And as we've talked about with that book. Even in that book, it's kind of hard to pull them all apart, mm -hmm. despite the fact they get like 300 pages to, to you know, all be their own person. So, right. Um, let's uh, let's break the book a little bit here. OK. Uh, and talk chronologically tack timeline. OK. Uh, because I think that's actually more interesting. Yes. I think the flashback we get, you know, so what, what they they're all imprisoned, like book timeline. They all get imprisoned. They all break out of prison while Trajan's off doing some other shit. Uh, they all go to a movie theater. David gets a uh, vision from God. And then we get a hundred pages almost of uh, like flashback of the stuff. So we're going to talk. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the flashback because that might be the best part of the book. I still think Stephen King is extremely good at things go to shit. You know, the text. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Because this is that chapter of, uh, you know, basically all the flashback we get from David. It's it's the, uh, you know, Salem's Lot falling apart. It's uh -huh. what we're going to get in a really cool few sections of Under the Dome in a bit, right? It's the beginning of Cell, which is really good, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it's uh, No Great Loss from yeah. uh, The Stand, the, probably for many people the most iconic part of that, even though the fact that it's not very many pages whatsoever. And, and certainly percentile, it's like 1% of that book. Mm -hmm. um but uh this is really good like no you know desperation no great loss is fun um mm -hmm. what what happened with this mind did you like this story about like the history of the mind oh i think it's yeah it's it's really cool uh so i mean uh there was a mine that uh had been shut down it was a copper mine they stripped it out um, there's another thing that ends up coming into this book, which is like Stephen King kind of pontificating about uh, uh, contemporary mining practices and extraction uh, and how it's like awful in terms of what it does to the environment. Like normal mining in and of itself is is questionable enough in terms of what it does mm -hmm. and the human cost. Uh, mm -hmm. But like these acid baths that they're using now to reopen like this mine, like to get, you know, the, the dregs like to pull. Oh, the yeah. So the j just to give the sketch of that. Right. So yeah. historically, like 19th century, right. Early 20th century. It was a deep shaft mine. 
Mm-hmm. A drift mine. Good God. There's so much yeah. like mining dude talk in this book mm-hmm. of like correct terminology. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was like a deep shaft. And uh, guess what? They, they dug, dug too deep. deep. They dug too deep. and <laughs> They discovered something down there. Uh, it collapses. We'll talk about that, maybe. Then mm-hmm. they uh, redo it again. And then they then that goes away, right? And then they redo it again. Mm-hmm. and Like this most recent one. And it's the open pit mining acid bath version. And I love how this is uh, figured into the evil destroys itself plot. Because there would be more eagles if they weren't doing this. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically, if we are told that these acid bath, these surface acid baths that like, uh, you know, basically uh, clarify ore, copper mm-hmm. ore, you know, take take the the garbage and turn it into something usable. The birds fly down and drink it and just die. <laughs> like, yeah. it's you know, it's the, the most like, uh oh. What are we doing? And it's killing all the eagles. And yeah. so, you know, Tack essentially finds a last couple of those eagles uh, or one of the few, the last ones and, and possesses it later. There would be more eagles if mm-hmm. not for the fact that this mine was killing them all. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that, yeah, that's the situation with, with the mine is that they have recently reopened it. Uh, but as you said, it's got a history to it. They they thought they had cleared it out. Um, but they were like, no, like, let's, let's go further. Uh, but the, it, they got into a spot where they were digging so deep, uh, and the earth around them was so, uh, unstable that basically the miners that they already had on site who were white men, uh, were like, no, not going to do this. Like, this is, this is not how I am going to exercise my labor power. And the mining company, in response to that, ended up hiring a bunch of Chinese laborers, uh, who they treated basically like slaves and were making them dig even deeper. Um, and then, uh, the obvious thing happened. There was a disaster. The mine caved in, uh, and, uh, all of the Chinese laborers were trapped. Uh, all of them except two who apparently came into town some days later and like started shooting things up or whatever. Uh, so this is like all the local legend, right? That this is like great sin or stain in the history of, of desperation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then here we are in 1996 and we're like, Hey, we could make more money with this new, absolutely evil way of uh, doing mining operations. Let's go back to the huge mine that already killed like 60 people or something in the past that everyone thinks is basically haunted anyway. Uh, and then that's when Tack is finally in for true let out. Uh, does that give you kind of like the base that you wanted to start with. Cause you want to talk through this from like, yeah. Perspective, well then that right? guy, but, but it's even more like the avarice, right. Of it uh-huh. is like, uh, the, cause the, they blow it open, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the day, basically. Right. Yeah. Or like or on a weekend, like it's like, it's like 4 PM Friday, they blow this bad boy open and they immediately, the guy who's the foreman is like, that's the old mine that everyone talks about where, you know, it collapsed and killed all these, uh, you know, like indentured Chinese laborers. Yeah. Um, let's let's do it. I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get in there on Saturday. I'm gonna steal some shit. I'm gonna uh-huh. take some photos, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I'm I'm gonna become the guy. Lo and behold, that dude walks down in there and gets possessed, and he gets possessed off screen, which is so good. Uh huh. Right. He like he goes down in there. You know, he's being a sneaky guy, sticking around, going down in there with the thing, and he comes out and just starts killing people randomly. 
Yeah. Um, or not even randomly. He has a very programmatic vision of how he's going to slowly but surely kill everyone in the next crew and then bring more people and kill all those people. Um, and, you know, there's all this ritual to it. He, like, hangs their bodies from coat hooks and stuff. Mm-hmm. Get um, very Texas Chainsaw. Right. Right. There, there's this real architecture to it that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. Um, and it's really unclear what is tech and what is this guy and, and are there rules that it has to play by or are there not? It's very ambiguous in a way that I really enjoy. And then it just like radically expands from there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and eventually gets in Trajan and then in Trajan really starts going wild because he is a big boy um, yeah. and does not have undiagnosed prostate cancer. Right. Yep. And then, uh, yeah. And then that brings us to kind of the present day. So, uh, that's like all of you may ask, what is tax plan? That is not terribly clear other than like tax mm. just wants to like spread chaos, right? Tax uh, wants the to the plan is to kill a bunch of vegans. Well, I mean, that's and the thing. That's God, the backup that child plan, stops enough. those vegans from being killed. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's the weird thing is that that's the backup plan is once Tack realizes things are going to shit in desperation, uh, it's like loading up a bunch of Cantaws on like an ATV and it's going to go out to like the closest uh, uh, settlement, which is like a vegan commune. It's like, I'm going to go turn these people into uh, like, you know, murder zombies. Right. Uh, yeah. That, uh, but yes, it's just like uh, proliferation and chaos it's Randall Flag, and weird, mm-hmm. weirdly enough, it's not even necessarily Randall Flag. It's more the Superflu. Yeah, right. And it's sort of actually aligned with um, not just like the avarice of the mining operation, uh, but like uh, uh, on like the next level up. Right there, there's something being hap- happening here. Um, and I, God, I should have actually marked this. I didn't. I didn't fold down the page where Tack. We either get something described from Tack's point of view or something about Tack is described where it is. It's like basically endless expansion. Right. So King is also, I think, trying to launch a critique here also with like, you know, the the history of the mine and all that stuff. Um, like there, there is something about Tack that is also like this is a like this is manifest destiny. Right. Or like whatever, like beyond manifest destiny, like the the imperial, the colonial uh, mm. kind of uh, rapaciousness. Right. The desire to to take and eat and devour and consume and spread uh, like that. That is also something that is being uh, critiqued mm. by its its sort of condensation into the personage of tack. Right. Well, and that's the weird thing about it, too. Right. Is that. King, I don't know how much of that is like a purposeful choice. That's where we land, right? Mm-hmm. But if it is a purposeful choice, it like just doesn't work uh, mm-hmm. on a basic level because uh, tack is a natural phenomenon. You know, right. it's, it's this aberration within nature that is, you know, whether um, artfully done or not, is like collapsed into indigenous american yes. landscape you know it's mm-hmm. it's all the things that happen there right it's like the uh, uh american imaginary that reduces indigenousness to nature and then nature has this core to it that is violent you know and, and you know we get the coyote the trickster the monster right like there's all this weird kind of american literary imagination collapse going on here um, and it's interesting to find, did you know, at the bottom of nature is, in fact, the thing that uh, Westward Expansion did, right? Uh-huh. 
right? Which aligns like this kind of chaotic expansionism with something that is natural as opposed to something that is cultural. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, really kind of lets that expansionism off the hook in some ways, right? Yes. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't think that's purposeful, but that is what what is given to us, right? That's that is what the text is arguing or claiming. Um, this rapaciousness, as you said, is just, it's just a phenomenon that happens. Right. And ultimately you need Jesus to blow it up. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Which right. also is a problem, right? Like, right. It's an incredibly right. coherent system that if you, tra- if you chase it down to the end, it kind of sucks. <laughs> yeah. So the other, um, uh, like, uh, yeah, relative to what you just said, the other thing that then happens here is there's a, uh, the, the, categories by which the human is constructed in this book right uh is uh at its base level a kind of division from the animal like Mm -hmm. the division between uh the human being who can think and make choices and sort of uh uh, rationalize things or whatever uh is opposed to kind of the animal which is hungry which is cowardly which can be uh instrumentalized and uh, so on and so forth uh that's uh one of the kind of uh, binaries or polarities that the entire metaphysics is, is sort of orbiting around. Um, and it ends up feeding into uh, the, the religious argument of the book, which, as you said, like we need Jesus to come in basically and help us be better people um, or some force that Jesus represents. Right. Uh, because otherwise we are given over to appetite. That's what the cantas do. Right. Is that they instill or they exacerbate appetites. Uh, they make they degrade people, make them more like animals. Uh, they are literally just turned into bodies for attack to possess, uh, uh, abuse, run through and destroy. Uh as opposed to whatever happens to you with the saving grace of Jesus, um, which notably actually Marinville at one point is like, hey, what's the difference between uh, your God, David's God, uh, getting us all together here and being like, all right, you got to go through hell and some of you are going to die in order to do the thing that I want to do. What is the difference between that and the uh, and whatever the hell tack is is doing and up to? And I would say that Um, One of the sort of outputs of the book or like one of the ways that the novel, I think, is trying to make this distinction, because, yes, put them up side by side. They look very, very similar. Um, uh, Tack is, again, about sort of the taking over of the will, right? The undermining of a natural will or sort of uh, 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 making something that is reasonable descend into animality, uh, whereas, uh, you know, the, the this is long, long history in, in uh, sort of Christian thinking, right? Uh, mm. To bind yourself to God is to bind yourself to, quote unquote, right reason, uh, to make the active choice to subordinate yourself to a higher power uh, because you know it is the right thing to do because the outputs are uh, better than like living with your animal appetites or whatever. Yeah, it's Job. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and this is also all coming through uh, the discussion of sobriety and yeah. Alcoholics Anonymous is all over this book. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because Johnny Marinville is such a dick about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Johnny Marinville, who was an alcoholic and now he's gotten clean. And we have Tom Billingsley, the local vet, who's also an alcoholic, but he's not clean. And Johnny is constantly like judging him for it. Well, he doesn't just judge him. He like kind of throws him off the wagon, you know? Yeah. Because he's like, uh, you know, they, they, he hasn't had a drink in several days, 
or like a couple days maybe because uh, mm-hmm. he's been in the jail cell and he's like a little rattled the mm-hmm. Billingsley is so Marinville like you know when we're in his POV is like all right this dude's an alcoholic I can see him from a mile away I'm gonna get him a drink so he can like get his shit together a little bit and uh you know then we'll be good and so he like contrives a scenario to knock this dude you know off the wagon into the bottle and the dude doesn't get out of it mm-hmm. <laughs> because because he's an alcoholic, right? You know, it's yeah. like part of the deal. He's in a very deeply stressful scenario. And then immediately Marinville is like, why did I do that? Right. Yeah. It's just because he's selfish. You know, mm-hmm. uh, King is giving us both a composite character of, you know, all the stuff that you just said. You know, he's he's the American writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen King is also the American writer. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think it's a, you know, there's a little bit of self-portrait here. Um, and I think he's pretty unkind to himself if this is, I don't think it's like a one-to-one self-insert or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. But there is a critique of the self-aggrandizing guy who wants to be, you know, uh, on the straight and narrow, but also is like teetering on the edge and maybe has relapsed a few times before, um, you know, uh, that uh, someone who clearly struggles with the reality of himself as a person and also printing the legend, mm-hmm. um, which is something we have noted repeatedly about King. You know, it, in yeah. every instance, the man will print the legend over over the history. And so there's something going on there. And there's also something going on with the fact that he, like, saves all those vegans. <laughs> <at the end>. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, uh, uh, he so the, there's an interest. So the other way that these books end up being really interesting to me, both desperation and the regulators is because of uh, precisely this kind of self commentary that you're describing. Um, where one of Marinville's like issues is that he's gotten sober. Like yeah. he's not, he's not a, he's not Jack from the shining, right? No, he's not, no. uh, a, a, a raging alcoholic. He's been a raging alcoholic, right? He's done awful things. He's mm-hmm. like, you know, beaten women in his life, women that he was in relationships with. So, yeah. but he's yeah, sober. He's also, he's also not guard, right, from the Tommyknockers, yes, where right. he's like melancholically attached to it, right? And and we don't get a sense that his alcoholism is because of like a deep set depression about modernity, which is where the guard thing comes from, yeah. right? It's like, uh, you know, the Dallas police are so bad that what is there to do but to crawl inside of a bottle? It's not that. He's just kind of an asshole. Like, it, the, right. the book makes that clear. That that's part of the deal, is that it's it's part of his personality that drags alcohol into it, and perhaps not the other way around. Right. And so, like, Marinville's kind of challenge for his, the arc uh, that he has in this novel is like, well, great job, man. You got sober. Now, what the fuck else are you going to do with yourself? Like, it yeah. doesn't change the fact that you're still an asshole to almost everyone around you. So what are you going to do? Yeah, he's a, you know, I, I don't know if they call him this, but, you know, this is from previous King books as you showed up. He's he's what they call a dry drunk, right? He mm-hmm. is he is still uh, has all of the behaviors associated with alcoholism. He just isn't actually drinking alcohol. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and it's also interesting here, too, right, where. There we I think currently in 2023, we have a certain imaginary of what alcoholism is. Right. You know, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's an addiction. You know, the language of disease is used quite often. Right. You know, it's it's a thing that is uh, a part of you that you have to grapple with. And there are many different ways of approaching it. But I think that's probably our most common one. 
uh, at this point in time, you know, our imaginary of what alcoholism is. And there's a little bit of that in here because that really enters the mainstream seriously in the 90s. But there's also a little bit of like, um, I don't know. Uh, King writes it also as, I guess, part of a personality too, right? Mm -hmm. It's not entirely a narrative of disease. It is a narrative of um proclivity that that doesn't just bottom out in disease i guess is what i'm trying to say it's it's more ambiguous about like where does marinville's alcoholism come from right as a mm-hmm. person where where does it originate um and he gets a lot of time to like think through that even though i don't think it's ever really resolved yeah it's it's very fascinating because um we we spend a lot of time we haven't talked about this at all weirdly enough uh uh we get a lot of his vietnam backstory which yeah. is not Right. He didn't fight in Vietnam. He was like, uh, I mean, he was like the Dennis Hopper character from Apocalypse Now. Kind yeah, of. Yeah, he was a journalist. Yeah. Right. Just, he, he went to cover the conflict, which it's so like I get where this is coming from. But Steve Ames is like, you know, employee is, yeah. basically says, well, you know what? He's braver than the troops. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like there's, there's such a weird moment of being like, you know, the guy who went to cover Vietnam. That's the real hero of America. <laughs> it's like, okay, what, like, whatever. You can have your your thing, but it's so funny to like write that into a character's opinion to be like, yeah, you know, the guys who really who really took it, they were the people who. It's not the people who were forced to go, uh-huh. uh, who didn't want to, who were drafted into the conflict. It's the people who decided to go write about it. They well, are it's, the real heroes. And it's not even the thing that Marinville believes, right? Because part no. of his inner, right? Because his inner monologue is like, actually, you were a friggin' coward. Yeah. Like you just went there and you watched people throw themselves into a meat grinder that you knew was a meat grinder, and you were powerless to stop it. And he actually thinks, you know he might feel better about it if he had been drafted or if he had been in combat. Cause then at least he wasn't just like a witness to it. <laughs> um, right. Uh, and that's sort of where some of this comes from is him. Like uh, it, it is similar to guard in that way where like his experience of Vietnam seems to have uh, hollowed out his uh, feeling about the world in such a way that um, he, he has trouble establishing kind of like genuine emotional connection to anything uh, because he has such a depressive view of like the actual things that are going on in the world and what, what comes of them. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, there's, there's a little bit of that. Uh, but, um, the other thing to then notice about like the religious elements here and sort of the Christian elements and, in all of this stuff is that this also comes out of Alcoholics Anonymous that, uh, uh, one of the core tenets of, uh, AA is about the belief in a higher power. Um, I don't have uh, a lot of knowledge about AA. I just know that it does come out of like a a like actual Christian work group kind of thing, right? The yeah. uh, AA is established in the 1930s and is very much shot through with um, the presuppositions of American Protestantism of that time. Um, oh, yeah, like the, you know, all kinds of stuff shows up back in this book, right? It gets like mm-hmm. rewritten. So like the language of the moment of clarity Mm-hmm. Where the moment of clarity is borrowing from, you know, Paul on the road to Damascus, right? Saul becoming mm-hmm. Paul, that whole deal, uh, right. you know, very, very Christian that that gets literally written back into this book as <laughs> Johnny Marinville literally, you know, having a, a flash of knowledge uh, that is the same thing as being on the road to Damascus. Right. And that like mm-hmm. changes the end of the book entirely. Right. Uh, so, yeah, like all the the explicitly Christian parts of AA in its formation and the things that kind of stick around in that uh, they are literally written back into the book as Christian metaphor 
uh, again, which Mm -hmm. is very interesting. Yeah. Um, And so uh, as it happened, a listener of ours uh, who does know more about AA reached out and just pointed pointed out some stuff uh, for me uh, Mm -hmm. and gave me the go ahead to pass it along here just because they were like, hey, I don't think you would notice this. And I uh, I just want to note how how deeply AA is actually showing up Mm -hmm. in this book. Interesting. Um, and with the caveat that, you know, like not every AA meeting is the same and, and, right. uh, different people may have different experiences, uh, but yeah, one but thing, but it is that, a format. Yes. Like that's how it works. Right. Right. Um, and so one thing, uh, that, uh, uh, was pointed out to me, uh, is that like the term desperation itself can be very freighted, uh, specifically the phrase, uh, that was brought up to me by the listener was, uh, the gift of desperation, hmm. uh, which is, uh, a way that, uh, you can talk about like, what is essentially your low point here is actually some clipping from AA literature that was sent to me to, for this, um, uh, here was and in the middle. It's like telling kind of an anecdotal story about a person uh, uh, battling alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Here was the terrible dilemma in which our friend found himself when he had the extraordinary experience, uh, which we have already told you made him a free man. We, in our turn, sought the same escape with all the desperation of drowning men. What seemed at first a flimsy reed has proved to be the loving and powerful hand of God. A new life has been given us, uh, or if you prefer, a design for living that really works. Uh, So the moment of desperation there is uh, a way of talking about, like, uh, hitting rock bottom, right? The point where you realize, like oh, like my life is off track and I need to do something about it. Like I am desperate to do something. What do I do now? Uh, so desperation then becomes the name of this town. Uh, and there's even like a weird little catechism uh, that I think David and uh, Johnny have about desperation, right? Isn't that right? Uh, maybe. Uh, there's a, a moment where I think David asks Johnny, like, what is the opposite of faith or something? And it's like desperation. Or, yeah. Yeah. That so, sounds This book is also very long. Yes, it is. It is very long. <laughs> um, anyway, AA starts out as uh, very, very deeply Christian. Uh, I think by the time King is in sobriety, I think they've moved to a slightly more genericized language, but that language is still very, very Christian. And it is my understanding, actually, that even in the contemporary moment, they they have uh, reformed it further so that it can be kind of more inclusive to different uh, presuppositions about faith and higher powers and, and how those things might work for people. Right. Um, but uh, there's a thing happening here where I think... Uh, you know, King has always kind of had this eye toward, uh, what if, what if this thing that we're calling God, what if this thing that this person is calling the Christian God is not actually the Christian God? What if it's something else? What if it's something sort of outside that or more fundamental to that? In other words, what if what, uh, Christianity thinks of as God is actually a misprison of some like truly higher power, but is not like what uh, uh, the Bible says God is, that that is kind of like a human malformation of an experience of some other kind of higher divinity. Um, I do think that there's something happening here, uh, particularly with the strain of AA, where uh, King is trying to imagine a uh, more fundamental religious truth about the cosmos that is like beyond Christianity, but because of uh, kind of his cultural grounding, uh, just reinvents 
Christianity with yeah. like uh, uh, a dualism, right? Tack, for instance, is very is not the devil, right? Tack, when we get into Tack's head, is not like ah the uh, all these memories. It, it doesn't do sympathy for the devil, right? <laughs> it doesn't, right, right? Right? It does not think of itself uh, in in a in Christian terms, um, but it is aware of other powers uh, in the power that David serves. It calls David Prayboy, the yeah. shitting little Prayboy, is what it calls him constantly. Cool. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think there is something where King is maybe trying to gesture at a, a broader metaphysical reality. Uh, but because of the things that are structuring his imagination are sort of like just the basic assumptions he is making about like what faith and religion are, are all being filtered through Christian lenses. So we end up mm -hmm. at the end of the day with a, a you know, Manichaean dualism uh, that might not in fact be a dualism at all because it might turn out that the higher power the truly higher power, the good power is in charge the whole time and the evil power is helpless, but to, you know, dance its little dance and then trip over its own feet. Yeah. Uh, King is, uh, he's, he's that bird on stage doing comedy and they say, give us a different thing. And all of, all of his cards say Christianity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, other religion stuff, I guess, is that, uh, God is also imagined as a writer. Uh, it's it's very convenient when you're writing a novel. Uh, this is actually the reason also I think that so much religion is here and that we're ending up talking about it so much is that one of the things that Entragian says when he first arrests Marinville is you've never written a truly spiritual novel. And Marinville's like, what the hell are you talking about? But then he realizes he's right, that he's never actually tried to uh, tackle themes of religion and faith and so on. And this is one of those places where it does feel like this is Steve doing self-critique and being like, this is a in the same way that, you know, he uh, clearly understood that women had n not been uh, well treated by previous work. He then tries to write some stories where women are uh, central to the action and kind of their experiences are uh, uh, the matter of the stuff. Uh, here, it seems like King is very consciously trying to tackle a you know, quote unquote, big idea by way of uh, really ruminating on questions of faith and duty and so on and so forth. And what it ends, one of the outputs is again, very Christian, very Calvinist. God has a plot in mind. God would very much like for you to cooperate with him in making that plot happen. Uh, and if you don't cooperate, awful shit is going to go down. Just FYI, like the worst possible shit you can imagine is going to happen if you don't go along with the plot that God is writing. Um, but you could do that. But you right. probably shouldn't. You probably yeah, should you like free will. You, you have free will and you should probably use it to give the novel a happy ending. <laughs> well, uh, in the middle here, all kinds of other stuff occurs. Mm -hmm. um, they they are all, you know, uh, Trajan gets them all in jail. Mm -hmm. That kid soaps himself up. Yes. And performs a miracle his by squeezing his big fat head through the <laughs> prison bars. His actual first miracle. I, I can't find the biblical precedent on that one where Jesus mm -hmm. made his head really tiny and popped Jesus is slippery noggin <laughs> that he noodled on through the bars at Galilee. Yeah, that didn't come up, I don't think. Yeah. Um, and all throughout the rest of the book, he's like, does anyone have any water so I can wash all the soap off? And people keep being like, no. You're so you're so dumb, kid. There's no water. It's the <laughs> yes. desert. What do you I do think? What do you I, think? 
I do appreciate the fact that like King really did think that through and he's like, oh, yeah, for like the next 72 hours, this kid is covered in like flaking Irish spring soap. Yeah, take that. <laughs> but I mean, there is a really cool part. Is it Mary who tries to shoot in Trajan when she's being put into the jail cell and he like dodges out of the way of being shotgunned? Yes, I think right. it's her. Yeah. It's really mm-hmm. cool. It's a great yeah. thing because that's where uh, David picks up the uh, shotgun shell. Right. Because it falls on the ground. But uh, so they end up in the uh, theater space, Mm -hmm. which is called Uh, the American West. It's an old defunct movie theater, again, called the American West. They're closing up the picture show. I know people love the last picture show, and I I don't, uh, you know, I don't have to ruthlessly shit talk that movie, even though I think it is so dripping in (laughs) nostalgia (laughs) that it's nearly funny at some points. But when when that kid says they're closing up the picture show, it's one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life, even though it does, I think, come up either either before or right after a very tragic death. And that somehow (laughs) makes it funnier. But, uh, you know, maybe maybe I got too much Stephen King in my head. But this is when uh, Audrey... Right. Uh, this is when yeah. she does her betrayal. She like kidnaps David for mm-hmm. all of 15 seconds. Right. Well, he he goes off to pray. And right. by pray, right. I mean, like, you know, kind of have a kind of fit. So she's yeah. hunting for him. Meanwhile, Tack is also using a cougar to invade. And we get some like we get the cougar's perspective on things. Yeah. Uh, which is, again, how you can uh, uh, work out. Uh, what I was talking about earlier that like the, the cougar is an animal and it is aware of tack as a foreign presence in its head, making it do things yeah. uh, and doesn't want to do it, but also knows it doesn't have a choice. So again, yeah. like the division between human and animal is that uh, the animals just don't have a choice. They just listen to tack when tack talks, but humans, mm, they're different. Anyway, where are you going with this? Uh, just that. Yeah. So uh, they all discover the uh, um, uh, leg staring, uh, uh, I, I don't know, detective work. Uh-huh. Thank God for heterosexual men. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> if not for them, they wouldn't have figured that out. If Tom and Johnny had not taken time out of their schedules to be a little bit horny for Audrey, they right. never would have noticed. I, literally, like, we're, I'm saying that that sounds ridiculous. That's literally how the plot works. Uh-huh. It's like, thank God we stared at this woman's bare legs for the last four hours. Yeah, uh, it's, but, it's Tom uh, who puts it together and he's like yes. complaining. He's like, I don't understand why she wears that short skirt. Why is she being so provocative? And then well, everyone he, notices it. They're like, yeah. why does Tom keep staring at her legs? Like, I, I think it's um, uh, uh, the the author, uh, Marinville, who, yeah. who like is like, yeah, he keeps he's drunk and staring at that woman. And I guess everyone's cool with it. But anyway, so they figure it out. They like run upstairs uh, and they uh, uh Stop her from doing that. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Someone gets shot or something in the middle. Oh, no, they're attacked uh, by the cougar. That, yeah, that's, yeah. Tom because they're like by helping the him out. The cougar jumps in the bathroom window, attacks somebody uh, and uh, they deal with that. But he's wounded. And that's when she takes her opportunity to go and attack David. David receives this vision from God from which 95 percent of what we've talked about so far is communicated to us. It goes on for 100 pages. Does it not? Mm-hmm. I mean, it might even be longer than that. Um. But uh, then they kind of just like figure things out. The whole time this is happening, uh, Intrajan and uh, the the mother and also Mary are like in this other plot that's happening that really doesn't go anywhere. It's just body swaps for fun, mm. for funsies. Yeah. Uh, this whole time, Intrajan could just go in and kill them. He knows where they are. Mm-hmm. 
Like, there, yeah. there's a big hole in the book, which is like, why does he not just deal with this issue? Yeah. Uh, and there's not really good explanation for it. Yeah, uh, well, it's so intriguing by this point, that body's done for. Right, like, they right, escape right. when he takes Ellen to the yeah. China pit in order to swap bodies. Right. Um, and then uh, once he's in, once Tack is in Ellen, uh, she tricks uh mary because she's like oh i'm hurt blah 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 blah, and that's how she tricks mary captures mary uh hoping to use her as an additional backup or at least as bait to draw the others out and so takes her to the mine and yeah as you're saying there's um uh i mean the way you can like rationalize this is that uh one ellen the ellen body as tack thinks of it uh is not as strong as the entragian body and in fact like the ellen body is is uh, going even faster because she had a the onset of a yeast infection and that's just like right. kicked up to 11 right I right forgot. i forgot about that yeah uh yes the plot critical yeast infection <laughs> so tack is tack is on its back foot uh, uh as it were yeah. um and it becomes like defensive and then it ends up going into the uh mine to like sit by the innie and meditate for a while uh which turns out to be the exact amount of time everyone else needs to like put down the other threats uh and then put together their plot to kind of close out the novel and then when tack comes back out and is like reflecting on this it's like uh you know tack thought it might have been a mistake to go down to the innie and rest no that couldn't have been right like that it's absurd. It couldn't have made a mistake. Yeah, just the book by that point is just so off the rails, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it is just spiraling nonsense. Uh, and this is about the point where I was like, "All right, I got. I have 150 pages left. <laughs> what mm-hmm. could happen over these 150 pages? And, and really and truly, not that much." Uh, mm-hmm. Mary gets out, but she gets killed, right? No, she doesn't. No, she she, actually, she lives lives all the yeah. way through. I just couldn't remember. Yeah. She becomes like the closest thing uh, David has right, to a parent right. at the end because of his li- literally his entire family has been wiped out because God is cruel. Right. Because, yeah, at the end, it's uh, uh, Steve and Cynthia in one car and then Mary and David at the end. Yep. Uh, right. OK. I, I Yeah. For some reason, I was collapsing her and Cynthia there, but. There's two cars. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, so Mary escapes, uh, and she's actually like she's critical because when she escapes, uh, chasing her is what really uh, kills the Ellen body. Like the Ellen body is already uh, uh, sort of faltering, and like chasing Mary is what ends up destroying that body, and that's why Tack has to jump into an eagle, and then the eagle kills David's dad. That's right. He just jumps and claws his face right off. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, so it's been uh, it's been like a billion degrees here. Mm-hmm. I think our heat index was like 104 yeah. this week. And uh, all the birds of prey are acting weird. Like uh, not 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 to be uh, depressing about it, but climate change is actively killing them all. Yeah. Uh, and so like the the hawks that live around here, there's a big owl I've never seen before. And they're like all getting close to our house, presumably to get access to water that we're like putting out. Uh, around but mm-hmm. uh but it was like a real desperation moment of like what is this owl doing here why is it like hanging out right beside me and like mm-hmm. the reality is it probably just wants to use the bird bath yeah uh, but it's but but you know it was a real desperation moment uh but yeah uh dad gets his face called off the they all hatch this plan to like go down in the mine and blow the mine up and there's like a cockamamie <laughs> 
uh, <laughs> goofballery to get there. The really and truly, the mechanics of it don't matter. But on the way to the mine, you know, they've got the whole crew like in a in a in a truck. Uh, Johnny Marinville has like a straight up vision from God, like a like a preview of what is to come. Mm-hmm. Does some sleight of hand to still to steal a, a, a uh, shotgun shell out of David's saber tash. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and then like prevents him from you know sacrificing himself. David's belief because David's whole family is dead at this point. Yeah, and David's belief is like he is the one who's supposed to go down into the mine and then get in a one v one, one v one. Uh, uh, what's the uh, final destination? No items with tack. Yeah, and uh, uh, Johnny Varenville won't let him do it because he needs to be uh, redeemed by the end of this book. Right. Yeah, because he tries to run. He tries to leave. He's like, ah, screw this. Yeah. Like, I'm going to, you know, get a vehicle and I'm going to leave this town. Uh, and David is like, if you do that, then we're broken. Like, Tack is one. Hmm. Some sort of quartet. God has appointed them all to be quartet. Like, they all need to go together uh, to go face this final evil and, like, put the plan into motion. Uh, and Johnny isn't having any of it until David comes to talk to him because David has gotten a hold of Johnny's wallet, which is filled with pictures of himself. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, and in this... Uh, he recognizes Johnny in Vietnam as uh the vision of a person who he saw in his like god dream who may have been god the one who was like telling him all this stuff uh but was not in fact god it was in fact like a young version of johnny marinville yeah and this also loops back to like the the clubhouse that david yeah, he and, and his, brian had a club yeah what's it called they call it the Viet Cong lookout. Right. And that's the name of a location that is found in a photograph. I don't know. It's some like Stephen King bullshit that like doesn't go anywhere, right? Like what what right. it's meant to do is be like, oh, there's synchrony here. It unites these stories, even though, you know, they seemingly have nothing to do with one another. But really it just feels pat and is unnecessary and, and does not make any kind of real connection between these people. Mm-hmm. Um and uh you know, I don't it also feels like the whole thing with David in this, it's another uh, rerun at The Shining. And uh, uh-huh. and uh, what's the name of that? The future future uh, kid, Tony, Tony. I was going to say Joni and I was like, yeah. I can't be right. <laughs> right. It's it's another. And I actually thought that that was going to be the revelation that it was another Tony and he was speaking to himself, uh, yeah. uh, you know, from further beyond. But no, that was not it. It was just uh, yeah. this unrelated thing. But uh, they yeah. all get, end up going to the mine and Johnny Marinville comes back and he, you know, he's got the shotgun shell, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he goes down into the mine and blows up the bad guy. Yeah, they use some of the mining explosives and then he uh, uh, puts on a motorcycle helmet. This is another like weird little right. pat thing. But because right. he is wearing the motorcycle helmet, Tack cannot possess him because right. Tack is like this, you know, smoke that tries it like slithers up your uh, nose and into your mouth. And it's just like bonking on the motorcycle helmet. Yeah. The, yes, I do like the description of like uh, when he actually gets into like the, you know, the kind of thinny or whatever it is right the the yeah uh the bail rog nest 
uh, where yeah, Tack actually uh-huh. is, right? And he like slides down that embankment or whatever, and it's like full of sharp crystals and rocks and stuff. Yeah, it, it, you know, again, some real Elder Scrolls uh, vibes to it, right? But and it like slices him up. And he's like free bleeding everywhere. It's cool. Uh, I yeah. like that a lot. Um, but yeah. yeah, you're right. It like smoke monster bonks all up on him. <laughs> and uh and then he blows it up. He there's one yeah. little hole. I do like this too, that like Tack is coming out of what is a one by you know, one by one by one all the way around, uh mm-hmm. like uh one inch hole in a wall, and on the other side of that wall is like the universe. You know what? Who knows what yes. the hell's over there? It's like this little pinhole into reality, uh, which also kind of is Maybe the idea of uh, the mist, you know what I mean? Like, I think mm-hmm. actually in my brain, I've taken this and transposed it onto the mist. Like, oh, all you need is a little pinhole. Um, and King uses this again later a couple times to talk about like a little break into Todash space. You know, this comes up mm-hmm. a couple times in later King books. Uh, but it's such a little hole. And uh, Johnny Marinville, it's such a perfectly sized hole that the shotgun shell fits perfectly in it, which is very funny. Uh huh. Uh, and so he just boom, like blocks it up and then blows it wide open, mm-hmm. which is silly. Yep. And then the mine collapses in on itself yep. and Steve and Cynthia and Mary and David leave. Uh, and when David uh, is leaving, he finds in his pocket the hall pass that he left at the clubhouse. It, he got a hall pass to leave school early when his friend got hit by the car. Right. Um. And so he left it at the clubhouse after he made his, like, you know, uh, request to God to save him. And he would be like, I would owe you a favor, God. Uh, and then it disappeared. And he just assumed, yeah, like someone else came by the clubhouse and took it or it blew away or whatever. Right. Uh, but he finds that hall pass in his pocket with a message on it written from Johnny Marinville himself. And it's the one, like, truly inexplicable miracle of the whole thing. Because Johnny didn't even know about the hall pass. But somehow he has uh, left a message here on this hall pass for David. Uh, and so this coupled with, um, you know, the uh, uh, meeting that they have in the dream space in the clubhouse with his younger version. Right. That's what I said when uh, Johnny is kind of the closest thing to the actual Jesus of this book, because he is the one who transcends. Unbearable kitsch. Like, <laughs> unbelievable. So darling, darling, stand. You know what I mean? It's like just going yeah. back to the to the well for like fake significance. I hate it. It made me uh-huh. not like the book more. You know. Ugh. Yep, it's goofy. Like, goofy. And so that's what I mean when I say that this book uh, stumbles in some familiar ways and also in some new ways. Is that there's a real... Uh, I mean, he's really going for it, writing the spiritual novel King is. And at the same time, the limits of his spiritual imagination are so, well, frankly, you know, saccharine, trite, like whatever. Uh, however... The thing that happens after this, pretty rad. When uh, it makes a giant smoke monster yeah. in the sky. You know, I, yeah. you know I love a big smoke monster. Like not even just <laughs> like a cloud monster. Right. It's beyond smoke. Yeah. So after the mine collapses and they like look back and they see a, a, a great dark cloud rising from the mine. And the cloud seems to take the shape of a... A coyote or a wolf with a uh, snake for a tongue. And then it just disperses on the wind. Yeah. It's cool. 
Yep. Uh, and it's a rerun at The Shining. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the mountains of Colorado, a giant manta ray <laughs> controls, <laughs> right. you know, there, there's a way that there's like, you know, whatever. Big quotation marks, animal spirits, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's neat. <laughs> Just the people in the middle of Colorado who somehow uh, got the idea for the manta ray. That's right. Uh, the, uh, but yeah, that, and that's it. And basically Johnny Marinville's like, Hey, you should try to go home and forget that your whole family got killed. David. Good luck with that. Make, make that kid your brother. That kid's going to have a hard life. I, you know, I actually do admire that King goes back to, uh, God, what's the kid's name from, uh, the shining Danny. Danny. I was going to say Jimmy. And I was like, that can't be right. This thing cannot be Jimmy. (laughs) Uh, Danny, right? You know, Dr. Sleep is, is like, well, what happened to that kid? You know? And mm-hmm. you haven't read that book. I've read that book. It's, it's, uh, really great in some places and not as great in others, but it's a, it's a better book than this for sure. Um, Steve, why are you too cowardly to go back to little David from the regulators? <laughs> now I know we are going to get David again uh-huh. and it will be worse, infinitely <laughs> worse, uh, in the regulators, but, um, mm-hmm. We don't have to talk. I don't mean in that way. No. I mean in a better, in a good way. You know, like, what what happened to David as an adult? Because it just seems hard. Like, there's a lot of people, a lot of kids in Stephen King novels who have to, go, like, get their parents killed and then, like, figure out how to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we actually return to, I think, to Bev uh, from It. Because you haven't read um, uh, the Kennedy novel, right? Uh, no, I haven't. There's a little stopover. It's not spoilers, but there's a little stopover in Dairy that happens in that book. Mm-hmm. I was aware that Dairy showed yeah, up Yeah, it's just like a little piece of the book, not much. But, you know, Steve can't help it, but go back, you know, and because it's taking place in the late 50s, early 60s. So, uh, and I think we get a return, a very brief return to Bev at that point. So, hmm. interesting. Um, I'm pretty sure. But anyway, just, uh, you know, give us the David book, Steve. <laughs> yeah. You're right. You're cranking out. Yeah, a book we've got Holly coming out this month. Now give us David. Oh no! Yeah, that's right, David. Yeah, how many Holly mm-hmm. Dibney novels are there now? There's like four, five, six. I think. I think. Uh, I think this next one is the fourth one. Okay. Uh, she's one of those interesting characters. You find these all throughout literature once you start looking. Where she was introduced as a supporting character in one novel, and then just kept coming back in increasingly larger roles. Yeah. So cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, anything else we want to say about the book proper? I don't think so. I think that's it. It is, uh, I, yeah, I just can't recommend actually sitting down and reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately hard, very enlightening as like a Christian novel, uh, uh-huh. you know, and, and I think it is a Christian novel, like very explicitly. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it takes some swerves here and there, you know, in the new age nineties, you know, it's playing in the spot, but it's it's uh you know uh sometimes god makes demands of you and you have to do it and that's a theme that we see all throughout steve but this is probably the place where it's like you know right on the surface no makes no bones about it that's where we're at mm-hmm. yeah so we can then uh move into some segments uh my favorite kingism is the segment where we both talk about some feature of the prose a line an image word whatever 
uh, from the thing that we just read that is indelibly kingy, that is indicative of his style or proclivities, his strengths, sometimes his weaknesses, uh, and sometimes maybe a little bit of both, uh, because that's mine this time. Uh, mm. My kingism this time is uh, Tack, not Tack the character, uh, but the fact that when Tack uh, possesses a person, uh, one of the tells that a person has been possessed is that they are incapable of not just interjecting into what they're saying. Tack! And it's so good at first. It, at first, it's so good. <laughs> well, it becomes uh, it becomes even better when other characters start noticing it. Yeah. I think it's Johnny Marinville who's like, why do you keep saying Tack? Tack, Tack. You know, he's like making fun of him. Yes, and Entragian is, uh, or Tack in Entragian is like, what are you talking about? I didn't say Tack, you said Tack. So that's yeah. also good, right? Like, yeah. Tack doesn't know that this is a tell that it has. Yeah. Um, uh, but this also ends up folding out into uh, something that is cool until it's kind of like meh, which is what we've already done. It's the can tax, the can toy, the can ta, uh, can me him tau. This is the language of the unformed. It is the language that tax speaks to the animals and it is implied to be like some sort of, you know, like low speech or demonic speech uh, in like kind of the, the Tolkien sense. Um, and it is at the start very good. Uh, and then it kind of gets a little overused by the end of the book. And it's like, OK, I'm tired of this. But uh, what's nice about it is that it starts out with just tack, tack, and then can tack, can ta. And it like scopes out ever so gradually and you get like more and more words. And then by the end, when we're in tack's head, tack is like <laughs> teaching us like unformed speech swear words. Like, how do you call someone a bitch in, in the unformed speech, basically? Uh, and... That's interesting, but also it makes it a lot sillier. So I really like it. I really like the way that it builds. Um, I also think that something that's pretty clever about it is that it's called, you know, the, the language of the informed or whatever. And it is essentially baby talk. It's all like one word kind of blurts and interjections. Yeah, and, uh, yeah and I don't I truly don't know what to do with that stuff. I because this becomes structural for king for the next decade right like this mm -hmm. is gonna like this uh language of the unformed it's gonna show up all throughout the rest of the dark tower um it's gonna you know pop up here and there um you know i in the middle of reading this book i i was like is this kind of like a on, on one hand it's baby language right right on the other hand like short staccato words and phrases that all string together kind of um, strongly. You know what I mean? Like uh, if you read these out loud, if you read like the, the, the actual phrases out loud, it starts to sound like someone making fun of like Dene language, right? Like mm -hmm. there, there's this other dimension that I never keyed into before, but seeing so much of it and thinking about all this other kind of indigenous -y kind of stuff that's going on in the book. I was like, ah, uh, is this like, you know, King taking a swing at that, right? Like, mm -hmm. what if there was a language even uh, underneath that language? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if that's, uh, you know, that, that's just pure supposition. But uh, w when it runs into those other things, I started reading those phrases a little bit differently and being like, oh, shit. Like, is this, mm -hmm. you know, is this the, uh, you know white guy with a turquoise necklace of language design in <laughs> right 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 um so i don't know it made me feel very very weird but i think you're right like it is it is so king right that you it's so king that it's shocking it hasn't been invented before 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like how was this not in Pet Cemetery? Right. 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 Uh, you know how how is that demon guy who who died and came back to life? How is he not speaking in this language? You know. Right. Um. And uh. So you know, I don't know. I have a lot of like feelings about it, but I think you're right. It is a kingism, like mm-hmm. down down deep. Uh, mine is the the two different stories that are told about the mine. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like the official story and then like the God given story that David gives and. They are the same story, but told from kind of two perspectives. Uh, and it, it's especially the the people who escape. Uh-huh. Uh, I love that. So basically the narrative is like the official story is that these uh, uh, Chinese indentured service, uh, insert, indentured servants slash slaves. Right. It's really unclear. The line there is is um, not well drawn. Uh, King doesn't seem invested in thinking through any of this stuff. So it's just we get what we get. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they dug down and they dug too deep and, and, uh, the white people who ran the mine did not give a shit about their safety. And so it collapsed. Right. And mm-hmm. then they were, uh, buried underneath the mine and because they, no one could get in there and, you know, we get very explicitly, this is King thinking very purposefully. Right. He says, you know, basically no white man would risk their life for these, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, 60 plus, uh, uh, Chinese miners. And so they just sealed the whole mine you know and it's this like you know white sin that's going on here right that uh, then is re-dug up and so there's so that is the first story that we're told and it's like oh that's what's going on here this is the return of the great sin right and then you're like no uh, actually that's not the case god says Mm -hmm. (laughs) on the (laughs) other side that actually they dug so deep and then they broke into this chamber where tack was the whole time Right. It's not just a haunted uh-huh. mine. It's a, a demon cursed mine. And they broke in there and they saw all these can talk, uh, can tack can toys. And they start like going hog wild down there and murdering one another and masturbating furiously and attacking each other and like kind of going zombie army, you know, just mm-hmm. like random stuff. So it, so it's really interesting that it's like King on one hand is like having a pretty, you know, at least realistic vision of like white indifference all this kind of stuff right which is historical uh and mm-hmm. attached to like real racial politics and, he, and then he's like well actually maybe it was a rational decision to blow that thing up because well, it's like yeah, there were demons yeah. down there right well it's like the people who are at the the uh two chinese miners who yes. escape yes in both stories right yeah in the first story they just like show up later and they've gone like wild right yeah. like no one knows what happens they think they've just like that they're like doing revenge killings they say yeah uh, and some people are like they're ghosts they're not even yes. like real dudes uh but what actually happened is that they were at the back of the crowd and they realized like oh shit something's something's happening and so they escaped and they like collapsed the mine yeah. to like stop it right. uh but they had already been poisoned and so they like degenerated out in the desert or whatever yeah and then they came back and started killing people right uh so yeah it's just uh, uh i love the parallel story right that is such a stephen king thing across the board like two different narratives one of which is the official story and one of which is the real history that's right out of Lovecraft, right? Like mm-hmm. that that is that is a method that he has and this is kind of the first time we've seen that in a while. Yeah. Um, you know, other than like maybe since it in terms of like yeah. the real two two stories, one real, one fake. Yeah. 
Uh, the other detail that I like about that is that in the official story, which is actually, you know, like the town legend story, there's a yeah. bit where the um, the owners of the mine, uh, while they're debating on whether or not to save all the trapped miners, they sit down and they have a picnic outside the mine. And this is presented as, again, like, oh, the uh, uh, aloof uh, white bosses who don't care about anyone. And that's like all well taken. Uh, but then one of the like weird little corrections that David makes via God is like they did have that meeting, but they didn't have a picnic. Nick. Like yeah. that was added for the salaciousness, but they did have a meeting where they decided like, yeah, it's probably not worth rescuing these people. Yeah, because uh, they don't know what happened. They don't know that they're all hacking each other's pieces down there or whatever. Right. But, you know, yeah. it, it is interesting the way the story gets done and all that kind of stuff. I also love the plot critical picnic, which is uh, <laughs> this is the second time we've had a plot critical picnic in Stephen King. Uh, <laughs> the first being in it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so that's my that's my favorite one for this one. Yeah. Uh, what in the Kingiverse is the segment where we trace connections between uh, what we just read and the larger King continuity, other novels, uh, things of that nature. And boy, howdy, do we got them going on here? Uh, number one, plot critical picnic. Yeah, plot critical picnic, <laughs> a favorite move of Kings. Right. Uh, the other things, uh, misery and paradise. At one point, someone is reading a misery novel, right? A Paul Sheldon novel. So that's, that, th this is interesting. I, it had never quite occurred to me, like how much he reused people reading Paul Sheldon novels here yeah. at this point in his career. Yeah. And also the yeah. implication that, uh, you know, there are other worlds than these. Maybe this is a world where misery never happened. You know, you gotta, you gotta hope for Paul Sheldon. The other narrative, which I think you brought up when the last time this came up, which is so much more depressing is, uh, Paul Sheldon tried to write that literary novel and it didn't take. And so he's just cranking. He's doing the thing that she wanted him to do the whole time, which is just keep cranking out misery novels. Yeah. Uh, uh, there is a point at which a character refers to a disastrous situation as a fucker row. Uh, this is, I think, the first time this term has been used, but it will be a critical term for Dreamcatcher. <laughs> um, so. Well, thank God it's just, a fucker and not a fuckery. You know? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, while people are bebopping around the American West here, there is mention made of Arnett, Texas, which is a fictional Texas town uh, that King has referenced a few times. It is where Stu Redman is from. Mm -hmm. uh, I already mentioned that Cynthia is here. It is explicitly Cynthia from Rose Matter. She makes references to things that happened in Rose Matter. Uh, she talks about daughters and sisters. She, in fact, gives the entire plot of Rose Matter from her perspective, which means that she doesn't know anything about the magic painting or Rose herself and all that. <laughs> right. But like all the big stuff she actually mentions. Right. For her, it really is just a story of a weird guy who showed up and started killing people. Yeah. And then disappeared <laughs> forever. Yep. Uh, uh, and this is, uh, uh, I'll flag it here. Uh, this is one of the, uh, like catch points or like flip points for between here and the next novel, the regulators written as Bachman, uh, all of the characters in this novel. And I mean, all of them, uh, will come back in the regulators, uh, but in entirely different situations and in some cases in entirely different like physical appearances in bodies, yeah. almost as if, you know, like there was a, uh, if you could imagine a story as a game and there was some kind of reset button that you could hit and then it would like scramble all of the starting positions. That's kind of what's happened. So, yeah, uh, it's, keep it's even even tech comes back, right? Yep, yep, Tack is there. Uh, there are some characters who are not in this novel who are in that one. I've actually yeah. been keeping some running lists just mm -hmm. so we can, I don't know, talk about minutia for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's, in the Regulators is going to, like, this is, uh, 
uh, like concentrated Kingiverse. Like we're going to get the same characters uh, in different situations in a different story that is also in some ways the same story. I'm sure you found this, but does he talk about why he does this? Uh, so oh, you don't have, you don't have to, to reveal it now. Yeah. I just I'm uh, yeah. yes or no. Does he talk about why he does this? Uh, he does, but it is debatable how much of it is an actual answer. Oh, okay, great. Right. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. Um, uh, what he does say, I'll, I'll give this to the listener to think about is he describes it as a repertory company, like an acting troupe that, uh, performs two different plays on two different nights. So, and, and one play is the worst play you've ever seen in your life. And the other one's okay. (laughs) Yeah. The specific plays that he mentions are Hamlet and Bus Stop, which would be one hell of a, like, you know, two day double bill. Uh huh. Um, uh huh. But, uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, something to look forward to in the Kingiverse. Then, uh, we already mentioned there's the stand meta text here. Like, God has specifically decided that we need to fight this evil in this specifically arbitrary way. And if we choose not to do that, we can. Uh, but God's gonna be pissed and the world is probably going to end. Um, uh, there is mention of the, the or rather the, the mine, right? The China pit mine, as they call it. Um, is described as sour ground at one point, which is how the uh, burial ground in Pet Cemetery was described. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Billingsley also talks about the Tommyknockers, they, they being initially mining spirits. And of course, we see some resumption of the Tommyknockers here with uh, people uh, getting obsessed with the Cantaws and giving into their base urges or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, for the most part, over, overwhelmingly, this is kind of a swing at most of Tommyknockers again. Yes. Mm-hmm. Very similar if, character if, types and a way worse book. Tommy Knockers is so good. It it mm-hmm. looks so much better from the vantage of 1996, by the way. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not only good based on what had come before, you know, st- a standout good book, but now based on what we've experienced after it, it's excellent. I'll take it over. <laughs> I've liked a bunch of these books, too. That's not even me like being like, oh, 90s King is bad. I think most of these books have been quite good in the 90s. It's just way better than those books. Mm hmm. Uh, and kind of closed the door on science fiction Steve for a little while, which is interesting. Yeah, it did. Uh, <laughs> a spaceship another... flew into space. What else are you going to do? You know, right, I did the thing that science fiction does. So. Yeah, they went to space. <laughs> uh, uh, just some final like connections. Then I think it's another like I think a lot of these the sour ground, the Tommy knockers. And I think this is another Tom Billingsley one. He mentions strawberry spring, which is the false spring that comes sometimes. Mm. Uh, and then, as we've already mentioned, at the end, there is an evil animal cloud that uh, appears over the evil site and then disappears. So uh, self-consciously, it's like especially these last ones, these like tiny piddling detail ones. King is like very self-consciously like combing over his previous output. And I think like putting all these little uh, breadcrumbs in for the for the diehards. Yeah. And, and this, too, as I think. I mean, well, no, we'll talk about this more in Wizard and Glass, but it seems like around this time, because he's writing Wizard and Glass at this moment, he has to be, or at least yes, he has to be, because it's coming mm-hmm. so soon after this. It's like next year, I think, next calendar year. Right. And so uh, he he has been very self-consciously self-referential and kind of self-summative um, in that book. And it feels like he's already starting to do that work of, of combing mm-hmm. through thinking back, maybe making some lists of things he wants to revisit because we're about to get that going pretty mm-hmm. heavy for the next little while. Yeah. 
Uncle Stevie's Mixtape, the segment where we review all of the music that was uh, listened to or heard by characters in the book that we just read, uh, because Steve loves music and so do we. Uh, Cameron, you got the first song for this mixtape. Let's hear it. When did Forrest Gump come out? 94, I think. Because this, the soundtrack, Uncle Stevie's mixtape, our great, you know, our good uncle who puts us in his Trans Am and makes us mm-hmm. listen to all these songs. We have to do this every episode. This is like, you know, that movie's often talked about as like the boomer soundtrack to end all boomer soundtracks. And I mean, that uh-huh. really like the baby boomer soundtrack for the century. Um, and that, that is this, you know, like this, the mixtape we are about to go through is the, the functional equivalent to uh, the, the Forrest Gump soundtrack (laughs) with some real, uh, uh, outliers with some, with some other songs that no one's actually ever heard of before, but Mm -hmm. for the most part is anyway, I got for what it's worth by Buffalo Springfield. Uh, this, this is like. Uh, the baseline for American music. This is like the 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 you know fill to line, uh, you know what I mean? Of like uh, the oil <laughs> reservoir of American popular music. This uh-huh. is perfectly three stars. All right, uh, I have the last train to Clarksville by the Monkees. This is four stars. I had uh, five hundred miles by Peter Paul and Mary. I gave this five stars, but really only because I like the inside Lou and Davis version of this. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, so then, therefore, because it inspired that film version of this, uh, it gets five stars. OK, uh, I have Leaving on a Jet Plane by Peter, Paul and Mary. I give this four stars. Is Leaving on a Jet Plane originally them? Uh, I don't know. I think it might be. It might not be. But it's definitely like th- theirs is the version that is referenced because in yeah. yeah. uh, uh, slash tack realizes that the Jacksons are named Peter and Mary. So he's like, where's Paul? It was John Denver originally. Okay, that's, oh yeah. Hmm. But I was given the long fart noise for uh, that joke. Uh, Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan. One star, blow it out your ass. Uh-huh. Uh, one Piece at a Time by Johnny Cash. One star. Really? I, yeah, I, I think so. Do you have the same relationship to Johnny Cash that I have to uh, Bob Dylan? No, no, not at all. I just, just think that the this song is good. one star. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Baby Likes to Rock It by the Tractors. Have you heard this song? This is a song. So the there's a lot of country music in this playlist. Yeah, and yeah, all of the country music is like the music of my childhood. Like this is what was playing on the radio Did as I was like coming to consciousness. Down by the highway? What the hell? What in, are you talking about? In rural Indiana. Yeah. Like this is what was playing on our country music stations as we actually like see sort of the transformation into like 90s pop country. So yeah. like Baby Likes to Rock It was a song that I like could sing along with entirely because it was on the radio so much when I was a kid. I've never heard this before. Yeah, I think you grew up in a different world. I think like, I did. I'm getting, I'm getting Berenstein Baird with the tractors here. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the song is great. I enjoyed listening to it. It's four stars. Yeah. Did you know they re- they recorded a Christmas version of it? <laughs> no, I did not see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Santa likes to rock it. Yeah, I think. Is that what it's called? <laughs> hold on. I need I, to... I, that's that's my gut feeling of how that would go. Yeah. It's uh, my hold instinct. On. I'm, I'm going to double check what the title is. Uh. Uh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's uh, Santa Claus is coming to town in the boogie woogie choo choo train. I it it talks about a boogie woogie choo choo train a lot, which is really great. Yeah, uh, which is also like that's such a Steve phrase. 
Yeah, a boogie bo- woogie choo choo train. The, the phrase boogie woogie by itself is a very steamy yeah. phrase. <laughs> uh, so somehow, uh, uh, by the way, I, you know, Disco Steve somehow. Wait, that's a mm-hmm. different guy. Uh huh. Oh, wait, that's uh, Disco Stew. I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, the next song then is I Feel Lucky by Mary Chapin Carpenter. This is another like pop country song from my childhood. It's pretty funny. Uh, it's amusing. I, I like it. Give it three stars. It's a song about a woman who's having like a really bad day, but she persists in saying that it's a really good day. And by the end, she's won the lottery and is dating like Dwight Yoakam and Lyle Lovett. Um, so yeah, three stars. And what's this in my pocket? Oh, it's another star. So I'll just go back to One Piece at a Time by Johnny Cash and, and make that a two star song. Oh, OK, great. Retroactively, uh-huh. you gave it two stars. Yeah. Uh-huh. I got This Old Man, the traditional song. <laughs> uh, and he played two stars. Uh, and, and here's why. I'd actually thought about this. It's better than any Bob Dylan song. <laughs> but it's not as good as, uh, as you know, the fill to line of American popular music. Mm-hmm. So it's two stars. <laughs> All right. Uh, I got 16 shells from a 30-06 by Tom Waits. Uh, On the one hand, I was super excited about this because Tom Waits is uh, probably one of my favorite musical performers, Mm -hmm. and I had not even realized that Stephen King would know about him. Uh, On the other hand, uh, this isn't one of the better Tom Waits songs, but it's actually like a very middle of the road uh weights tune so i give it three stars but that means i have another little star here in my pocket to move uh one piece at a time to three stars i truly uh do not like tom waits mm-hmm. um like even a little bit uh as a musician but i think he's great as an actor mm-hmm. i really like him as the uh uh like the mc character in uh midnight train Mm-hmm. He's great in that. He's in. Uh, is it Down by Law that he is also in? Oh, I want to look that up. Maybe he's been in a lot of things. Have you seen Down by Law? Yeah, I have not. He isn't Down by Law. So uh, he gets arrested. He's in prison. That's the thing. But it's so in in jail uh, together, sharing a cell. It's uh, Tom Waits, John Lurie, and Roberto Benigni. Uh, mm-hmm. As like uh, an Italian man who has been arrested for uh, <laughs> he accidentally killed a man, but he like barely speaks English. And so they like all have to like engage with one another and they escape prison and uh, like end up out in the countryside. It's great. It's a good movie. You should check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I. Oh, I've got. Do you believe in magic by the love and spoonful? This is an American classic. This is 5X, perhaps 10X, any Bob Dylan song. Five stars. <laughs> uh, are they Americans, the Love and Spoonful? I don't American? know. It's a critical. You don't have to be American to make a great American song. Oh, they song. are American. Okay. I was just I double checking. It doesn't matter. Yeah. You can be anyone to make a great American song. That's like, that's our whole deal. <laughs> it's true. Well, speaking of great American songs, the next one is People Are Strange by The Doors, uh, five stars. This is like a perfect song, and I still have another little star left over to bring one piece at a time up to four. Mm. Um uh you you think Steve's way into the doors? I don't know. I think he's talking about like the Lizard he, King. Yeah, I feel like he maybe has a passing uh, uh affection for the doors, but I don't think he's like a doors guy. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. Um Pictures of Matchstick Men by Status Quo. I'd never heard this before, but it, it is uh um uh fairly pedestrian in terms of like what <laughs> it's doing. Uh so uh, two stars. Mm-hmm. Uh Hurt Me Bad in a Real Good Way, Patty Loveless. 
Um, this is two stars because it's mm, frankly kind of boring, but it's another like early 90s, actually even earlier than the others. This is like 1991, I think I double checked. So very early in kind of the uh, 90s country revolution that was going on. Uh, but because it's only two stars, I have some left over. One piece at a time is now up to five stars. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Getting some mm-hmm. extras. Just running around in your pocket over there. One piece at a yeah. time, five stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got good loving by the rascals. This is fine. It's three stars. It is not. A, okay. You know. <laughs> but it's worth noting that this is a book that or, you know, the book contains like two paragraphs in which characters talk about how goddamn good this song is. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I think that <laughs> if you did the kind of thing that Stephen King does, like no one else can get away with this. Mm-hmm. No one else on the planet can get away with like taking a full page out to be like, hey, you know the song that came out in 1981? It's dope. Check it out. No one else can do that. <laughs> well, this isn't even 1981. This is like a Vietnam song. I know, I, but I'm just saying, right? If you just pick an arbitrary, you know, thing. right, yeah, right, 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 it's just wild. Right. Barbara Kingsolver is not out here in her novels being like, hey, and you know who was overlooked in, no. in the 70s music scene? <laughs> no. I don't she's a, I don't think John Grisham's doing that either. Yeah. <laughs> uh Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix, five stars. Excellent. Yeah, I can't believe I got good love and you got purple haze. Come on. I got the only way uh, I'm the only hell mama ever raised by Johnny Paycheck. It's four stars. It's a good song. Mm-hmm. But before I gave it a, a score rating, I did have to Google Johnny Paycheck racist. Uh-huh. Just just to check, because he's from that, you know, that set of dudes, uh-huh. you know, where you don't know. And as far as I could tell, the answer was negative, uh, uh, medium to negative, right? Mm-hmm. At least if you want. But he did, uh, uh, you know, he uh, famously performed Take the Shove and Shove It, mm-hmm. which is written by David Allen Coe, uh-huh. who wrote a bunch of real offensive music. Yes. Mm-hmm. And also was just a huge liar. <laughs> Have you ever like learned about all the lies that David Allen Coe told? No, I haven't. Mostly I looked, I've just I wa- heard I about watched, the racism. I, yes, of course. I, I watched Heartworn Highways, like the documentary about like 70s country music. It's uh-huh. fascinating if you haven't seen it before. And he did a big deal of kind of the Johnny Cash thing of touring prisons. His whole uh-huh. thing is like I'm a former felon, you know, whatever. And he was doing the rhinestone cowboy thing, all that. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, just basically everything he said about crimes he committed and like cool shit he'd done, essentially, just <laughs> all made up. Just all fake shit. He just made it <laughs> all course. up. Uh, Poser. You know, yeah. So <laughs> anyway, just some David Allen Co. facts for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gates of Eden by Bob Dylan. Uh, one star, more like the Gates of Hell. Wow. Um, I don't know. I, I I I truly don't even know that song. Do you know the way to San Jose by Dion Warwick? Uh, I'd never heard the song before. It's good. Three stars. Yeah, it's fun. It's uh, a little slow, but yeah. it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Papa loves Mambo by Perry Como. Uh, five stars. Along with People Are Strange, a perfect song. Uh, <laughs> uh, I got Spiders and Snakes by Jim Stafford. Uh. Two stars. I gave it two stars. I can't even tell you what it sounded like, which is wild. Oh, let me see if I can pull this yeah. up. I listened to this one yesterday just because I'd never heard of it. And I was like, I got to know, like, if a song is called Spiders and Snakes, I got to know what it sounds like. And I listened to it. And now, like you, I cannot remember yeah. a thing about it. I'm going to pull it up here. Just. Oh, right. I do know. It's got this, like, uh, 
wah wah pedal funky funky tune. Right. It's not mm. good. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. I'm uh I'm demoting the song one star. <laughs> it's worse. Uh, That's what you right. get, Jim Stafford, for not making a memorable song. I have to listen to it live, and I immediately had a sense memory. One star. It's as bad as being attacked by a spider and a snake. <laughs> okay. Uh so uh, uh, that brings us kind of into the tail end of this episode. Uh, if you like what we do here for Just King Things, uh, you can support us on patreon.com slash range touch, where we have all sorts of bonus episodes. We've had uh, a bonus episode for every mainline episode. So if you go and you support us for $5 just right now, you will get all of those bonus episodes layered up until this very point. You, get, you basically double your King Things experience, right? Mm hmm. Right. Yeah. Like that's basically what's going on. Yeah. Uh, and so last month we talked about uh, the Green Mile film because we recorded that before uh, 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 the strike guidance for podcasts went out. Uh, this month we'll be doing something a little bit different. So in your feed, if you're already subscribed, you will see that we have a, a special guest. It is Allison Rumfit, uh, a poet and author uh, and uh, author most recently of a, a haunted house novel. Uh, called Tell Me I'm Worthless, and we'll be talking a little bit about Allison and her work. Uh, uh, I, I'm very much looking forward to that, but uh, one of the main things we're actually going to do, because Allison was originally going to talk about the Desperation miniseries with us, mm. uh, and then things happened, so we we decided to, uh, uh, you know, re-strategize a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, she and I were talking, and uh, I... Uh, I think it was your idea. Like, is there are there like short stories she wants to talk about? So mm -hmm. I ran this idea by her and she decided she wanted uh, to talk about Robert Aikman, uh, the British. Uh, I was going to call him a horror author, but that's a label he probably not would not have uh, uh, accepted. A lot of people call him a writer of ghost stories, but he called his own uh, genre of fiction that he, you know, he invented himself. He called it strange stories. That's how he describes himself Seems intolerable as a, as a person. <laughs> <laughs> he was a very interesting and intolerable and in some other ways, intolerant person. So that's uh, also, I think, going to be part of our discussion. We're, we're reading three of Aikman's short stories from the collection, The Wine Dark Sea. Um, so if you want to pick it up and read those uh, so you know what we're talking about, although we will give, you know, little descriptions and summaries. The three stories we are discussing uh, are Your Tiny Hand is Frozen, The Fetch, and into the wood, and we'll be having uh, that discussion with Allison over on the bonus feed. I do want. Can I issue a correction? Sure. Allison is not most recently the author of uh, "Tell Me I'm Worthless." Most recently, the author of "Brain Worms." Yes. Well, uh, "Brain Worms" isn't out yet, which is why I. Oh, I uh, thought I thought it. Uh, oh yeah, it comes out in October. I thought it was yes. out this month. That was my mistake. Yes. Yeah. So we will talk about also. We'll talk about brain worms. But I read uh, "Tell Me I'm Worthless," uh, the book that uh, that, as you know, I keep accidentally calling to uh, be mean to me. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for, for some reason. I mean, I guess it's not a wrong paraphrase. No, it's not. But I, I don't know why it's locked <laughs> in my head that Alison Rumford's book is called "Be Mean to Me." But I have done that. Uh, if you enjoy the show, of course, as Michael just said, get on the Patreon. $5 a month gets you these bonus episodes. We've got like 40 of them or something, close to 40 of them uh, in the backlog. And of course, you get a new one every month. Also, we want you to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. We're, we're resting perfectly at 4.9 out of five. If we get enough recent reviews that are five, it'll knock us up to five eventually. Occasionally, we get some fours. Fours are dragging us down. 
come up to five. And if you uh, write a write a funny review or one that's uh, you know uh, good for audio content, I might read the thing here on the podcast. And uh, I'm going to read two. This is from Slim Shady. Ninety two. Okay, there were ninety one Slim Shadies before this. One. <laughs> that's you know that's a joke that's been around since the nineties. Still funny. Mm-hmm. Still funny to throw some. Anyway, Slim Shady, 92. Doing it for the pee pants tracker, which hasn't been introduced <laughs> yet, but I redownloaded Apple Podcasts, leave this review, and put myself on the list of people patiently waiting for the pee pants tracker. Um, and then there's a compliment here. But you know what? I trust everyone to have their own pee pants tracker at home. And I think you can uptick that pee pants tracker because he does say the last two drops go in your pants. Mm-hmm. implicitly making this a pee pants book <laughs> there's another one it's from Cy June we do it for Steve I'm on an airplane ready to fly back home to Brooklyn brag an announcement comes on the <laughs> d- announcement d- 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 wait hold on did Cy June say that or did you enter the brag no, that was an editorial remark I'm sorry okay <laughs> I had a little carrot underneath it where I'd written it above uh-huh. uh, an announcement comes on I'll start over I am on an airplane ready to fly back home from uh, home to Brooklyn brag an announcement comes on. The announcement ends with, we do it for. My brain fills it with Steve. The announcement finishes, you. 10 out of 10. Brain worms. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's great. If you enjoy the show, great. leave us a five-star review. Really, like, you know, it's fun to read these reviews. It's great to get five stars. Really, it just helps people learn about the show. The, we don't buy advertising anywhere. We don't, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, over here on uh, Serial. Buying advertising time, you know, that's the way you really get mm-hmm. these things out, I think. But uh, it's all word of mouth. If you have a friend, person, family member, uh, someone on the, sh- on the street corner you think needs to know about the show, you think might enjoy the show, let them know about it. Send them a little link, send them an email, uh, tweet at them, uh, and uh, let them know about it. Uh, and mm-hmm. give us five stars, please, because it helps us sequence up in the old uh, book stuff. <laughs> listings whatever they are (laughs) michael what are we doing next month well next month uh we will be doing uh, a couple months late uh our annual q a episode uh question and answer episode um as the bonus episode yeah as the bonus i was going to say do you want me to explain this that typically that's yeah yeah typically i mean you know i i can i could say it the uh Uh typically that goes in the normal feed is just an extra episode and uh, look, we're in the the uh, in the strike era. Okay, we need bonus episode content. Mm-hmm. That's just the reality of it. Next month, the bonus episode will be a Q and A. So uh, if if you want to hear our yearly Q Q and A, hop on uh, behind the paywall over on patreoncom touch. Uh, in the main episode next month, we're doing the regulators. My least yep. favorite book. Yeah, maybe well. period. It could be my least favorite book of all time that I've ever read. You know what? It's really, I'm currently reading what might be my actual least favorite book of all time. We've talked, of course, about my favorite book of all time, which is I Am Jackie Chan, the autobiography of Jackie Chan. Uh-huh. Um, but I think my, maybe beating out the regulators now is a memoir from a guy who was extremely tertiary to The Tonight Show. And it is a book that is just anecdote after anecdote of him talking to people who have some very disconnected relationship to The Tonight Show. And I am suffering through it for a thing I'm working on. But it might be my least favorite book I've ever read. 
Worse than the regulators. Though. It might be worse. Than, in we're going to talk next month about some of the wildest shit you have ever heard in your mm-hmm. life. And as you said earlier, perhaps you can't ever walk it back. You know what I mean? Like once Steve wrote those words on the page and said, "You know what? That's getting published." Uh-huh. Y- you can't undo it. You know, time happens. Yeah, and yet it still might be worse than that book. Yeah. No. I mean, there's. I'm th- there's. So I'm about halfway through the regulators right now. Um. I started it early and uh, it reads real quick. That's maybe a a merciful thing about it. Yes. Uh, But just in terms of stuff Steve has put on the page, uh, the regulators is miserable and gross. Actually, yeah, people often wondered like, oh, should I be reading along? Should I read the next book? No. Uh, I Yeah, right. Cameron says no, absolutely. And I will tell you, as someone who is kind of going to go to bat for aspects of this book. Right. Like I there are things about the regulators that I really like. I will also tell you, you do not have to read this. In in fact, you maybe shouldn't just because of how miserable the book is in in kind of uh, uh, the actual fact of it. Uh, But I'm going to get out. I'm going to get out in front of this. You ready? Yeah. Hashtag not my Richard Bachman. Not not my or not by not my Richard Bachman. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's, this is some bullshit. Yeah. Don't put the guy's name on. This is not a Bachman book. Mm hmm. There, <laughs> there's no aggrieved white man. Yeah. Well, I mean, I that, that's are. a conversation. It's going to be a really interesting conversation, <laughs> right, I think, trying to figure out what's happening with Bachman there. Of course. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you you don't have to read that book, uh, but we're going to. Uh, we have to. Um, it's, it's part of our jobs here and, uh, uh, we do those jobs for you, the listener, uh, reading books. So you don't have to sometimes, but we also do them for, do it for someone else. Who's that Cameron? Um, I'm looking here. Hold on. I'm, um, looking through my contacts on my phone. Uh, oh, Steven Weber. Yes. We, yep. We, Doing we do it, it for Stephen Weber. Okay, great. Great, great, great. We do it for Stephen Weber. Okay. Remember, until next time, we do it for Stephen Weber. <laughs> no, we do it for Stephen